Commanders, Eagles, and Angels, this is Rainbird, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Tar and Rama's Hard News on Friday night at BBS Radio Station 1. So we're grateful you're joining us here. We'd like to take just a few moments to get into that heart space and set the tone for the evening with a little bit of drumming and calling in the galactic direction. So let's start by taking a few channel breaths. Breathe in through your nose and out through your mouth or whatever protocol you like to use. Just do those breaths slowly and gently and deeply. Go into your heart space as we let go of the dross of the day. Once we're there, we can gather with our guides and guardians, our spirit teams, our healing teams, whoever you like to join with. I hear that calling drum. (laughs) Who else? Yeah, all, all those people that you're joining with, this drumbeat with. So we're gathering around this council fire. There's a council fire here, and it's in the center. So let's gather around in that virtual way we know how to do, in that perfect circle around this council fire.
perfect. Now let's call in the seven galactic directions in the Mayan tradition with the Kimi drum. That linker of worlds. House of Light. May wisdom open in the dawn that is upon us so that we may see things clearly. We welcome from the north the House of Night. May wisdom mature among us so that we may see everything from within. We welcome from the West, the House of Transformation. May wisdom be transformed into right action so that we might accomplish what must be done. We greet from the South, the house of eternal sun. May right action give us the harvest so that we might enjoy the fruits of the planetary being. Can we greet from above the house of paradise where the star people and the ancestors gather May their blessings reach us now. We welcome from below, House of the Earth. May the beating of the crystal planet's heart bless us with its harmonies so that we might end war. Welcome from the center, source of the galaxy, which is everywhere at once. May everything be recognized as the light of mutual love. I am Hunaku, even Maya, Imaho. I am Hunaku, even Maya, Imaho. Ayam Hunaku even Maya Imaho All hail the harmony of mind in nature A homotakriyas in all my relations
So just stay wherever that drumbeat took you. And in Lock Ash Hall at 10, I am another you, you are another me. Let's take a few moments to look at the record of days for today. And in the Mayan tradition, and in in the week ahead, so to, we are in the wave of Muluk, and that we entered that wave on the moon day, <laughs> and so the wave of Muluk is the wave of the moon. So we entered that on that beautiful blue moon, super moon, on Wednesday, <clears throat> two days ago. <clears throat> So this wave, the guidance for this wave is that it's a period of purification. We use that water energy, that purification energy of the moon. And we're not going to have another blue moon, super moon like that until 2037. So may this this energy last for 14 years and see what happens next after that. Uh, so well, let's embrace this energy of this this blue supermoon and this wave that we're in of the moon. And today is a three chewing, and that's the blue electric monkey. It's the third day of the wave of the moon, and uh, it's the first day of the month, the ninth month of the our Gregorian calendar of the of that uh, yeah that calendar. <laughs> So we're at the 1st of September. Let's look at this blue electric monkey day. It's <clears throat> The electric tone is about bonding and service and activate. Those are its key words. And the three words representing the monkey, chewing or play, illusion, and magic. So here's the mantra for today. I activate in order to play. Bonding illusion. I seal the process of magic with the electric tone of service. I am guided by the power of vision. And I am a galactic activation portal. So this is a portal day. So enter me. As we go through this day, we are in that extra dimensionality that these portal days bring us. So this day is guided by the Blue Eagle. And the occult power for the day is the the white dog. <clears throat> and the ally for today is the yellow star, and the challenge for today is the red dragon. So those are the energies we're working with, and we're in that occult power this evening as we are in gathering together here. So let's work with that. Uh, the gift of that occult power of the dog, that unconditional love, as we embrace these energies for today. We'll just look at it just a little bit more. Ock, the dog, is an artist aspect, and it's about unconditional love. Wait a minute, that's the dog. (laughs) Today's the chewing day. I forgot. The dog was the... um, Ah, the uh, the occult power. So yeah, so we're working with the unconditional love on this chewing day, and the chewing day is the monkey. It's an artist aspect. It's about balancing work and play. It's about um, paying attention to clarity of mind 
and that wise use of magical artistry that the monkey reminds us that we have that gift. So let's work with the, these gifts of the innocence and spontaneity that the monkey brings us, and that ability to play and laugh and and have fun. As we let go of any insensitivity or any jadedness or any resistance to compassion, we embrace these energies today. In that portal energy, just accentuating it all, bringing it throughout the universe into the cosmos. <laughs> so then tomorrow, moving right along on Saturday, it's a four ebb. Ebb is the human, so the four is self-existing tone. So tomorrow is a yellow self-existing human day, and um, it's um, a healing aspect, the human. And our work with the, as humans is the enlightenment of humankind, and so we're activating cosmic consciousness with this energy, and we're attuning to spirit. So listen, attune, and embrace these gifts of being that human servant warrior that gift of abundance and that contact with other dimensions that we have as humans. So let go any dependence on the analytical mind as we go through this energy with on Saturday. And then on Sunday, moving right along, it's a five bend, the red overtone Skywalker. The Skywalker is is a warrior energy, and its work is, is focusing and striving towards self-illumination and, and clarity of mind. So let's work with all that as we embrace these gifts that the Skywalker brings us, that, that strength and that ability to bend dimensions. As we let go of any resistance to faith or any belief in aloneness, we embrace these energies on Saturday. When we come back and do more work, we'll be working with that Skywalker energy. And then on Sunday, that was Sunday, excuse me, (laughs) on Monday, yeah, the five bends, so it's an overtone. Um that Skywalkers with working with the overtone, which is harmonic um, energy. And so we'll be working with that energy on Sunday. And then on Monday, it's the six ish. And that's the white rhythmic wizard. And it's also Labor Day. So let's play with Labor Day with that energy of the, the white rhythmic wizard, that rhythmic six energy, that rhythmic energy is... It means that we have the same guide as the eagle. So it's a double eagle day. And so it's a double vision day. It is a visionary aspect. So that's perfect for those gatherings that we do on Labor Day. So let's embrace this work of our commitment to service and moving consciousness to source and reconnecting with all creation as we embrace these energies. We we accept these gifts of independence and the belief in ourselves, and we let go of any feelings of despair or dissociation or the illusion of separation. As we celebrate Labor Day, we have all these good energies to work with, lots of eagle energy, visionary, visionary work. And then on Tuesday... 
<clears throat> it's the seven men. And wait a minute, I just messed up. Hang on a second. Sunday was Ben, <laughs> and then Ish, and then Tuesday's the seven men. And I just read you the men. So that <clears throat> going back a little bit, Labor Day is Ish with the magician, and <clears throat> men is for Tuesday. And that's that visionary aspect that I just told you about. And I just got my days mixed up. So here we are on Wednesday now. So that was Tuesday with the the ego energy. And uh, Labor Day, we'll be working with the energy of the wizard, the magician. And so on Tuesday, we're working with... Not Tuesday, Wednesday. We're working with Keeb, the warrior. <laughs> I hope nobody's mixed up. <laughs> it's just me. I'm the only one mixed up. This is Keeb energy on Wednesday, the warrior aspect. And with this is this is about trusting our journey and uh, bringing awareness of right action with the Keeb energy, this warrior energy. So we embrace the gifts of that communication with the divine and accessing cosmic consciousness with this energy. So, yeah, let's work with the cosmic consciousness and let's let go of any hesitation or limitation or any restrictions as we embrace these energies on Wednesday. And then on Thursday, it's a nine cabal, the red solar earth. The the earth... Energy is a healing aspect, and our work with the Earth is keeper of the Earth. So we're staying in awareness of Earth energy at all times. We're listening, and we're embracing that gift of access to planetary harmony and being that balancing point and working with intuition. And and it's this red solar Earth, so we're working with that nine solar tone And that's definitely activating all the activation points together. The three, six, and nine are the activation numbers in the Mayan calendar as they are in the the world of energy. They are known as the organic numbers. So here we are working with this healing aspect and um, being that keeper of the earth. So that's Thursday, and we come back on Friday. It's another portal day, so extra dimensionality as it's a planetary mirror, the white planetary mirror. It's another warrior aspect. We're working on our groundedness with that mirror energy and that wise use of honesty and self-understanding. So if you get confused, just go look in the mirror and get some (laughs) self-understanding. We embrace these gifts of scrying the unseen with the the mirror and that fluidity and persistence the mirror gives us. So let's let go of any illusion of separateness or any fear or any abandonment issues as we embrace these energies on Friday. And it's powerful energy. It's that portal energy and it's that eight tone, it's a ten tone, the planetary aspect. So it's manifesting. Um, 
everything into reality that we're working with, with this Muluk energy, this moon energy we've been in. So <clears throat> let's just keep working with that purification as we embrace these energies. We'll talk about it again some more next week when we get, get back. And what I'd like to do for a few moments now is change my hat and talk about the housekeeping. As we are a listener-supported radio program, it's each of us that make it happen. We have expenses each week, and it varies from month to month, depending on how many uh, Fridays and Saturdays are in the in the week and Thursdays. So this month, we're needing $305 each week. And so that's due on Monday. That's $305. We'd like to get it in a timely way. And 305 is more than normal, but there just happens to be a lot of weekends in the month. So that's why it happens that way. And uh, so we're lucky we get to do a lot. (laughs) And we're lucky that we have each of us to make it lighten the load a little bit. As we each put a little bit in, put in a little extra, knowing that we do extra duty this this month. And, And then as we all can pitch in, it really makes it happen in in a good way. So here's what we need to do. We go into our heart space, see what is ours to give, and then go to bbsradio.com. And there on the home page, you see a schedule for Radio Station 1 and a schedule for Radio Station 2. We're on Radio Station 1, and you'll find this program listed at the 8 o'clock hour. All the listings are in central time on this schedule. So on Fridays at the 8 o'clock hour, you'll see the hard news on Friday nights with Tara and Rama. As you click on that icon, that'll take you directly to our account with BBS Radio where you can make a donation using your bank card in any amount. So thank you for taking that action. you also find us on Thursday nights on Radio Station 1 at the 8 o'clock hour, it is a night at the round table with the panel, and you can make a donation there in the same way by clicking on that icon and uh, making that donation at our account that shows up right there. And we also have a show on Saturdays on Radio Station 2, and it's at the 3.30 hour. It is the, tree, the True History of Nasser and Our Galactic Origins with Tara and Rama, and that one starts, yes, at 3.30 Central, and you'll see that icon there. As you click on it, you can make that donation with your bank card. So thank you for taking that action. We're so grateful for all your contributions, and we invite you all to Radio Station 2 tomorrow to join us uh, as we have a 10-hour program on Saturdays that doesn't sit on Radio Station 1. So... We are grateful we could do that on radio station, too. It's a long day and never a dull moment. I can tell you that. So uh, lots of gratitude for having that opportunity to do this work together and to come together as a family like we do. So thank you so much for your participation. 13 thank yous and honey in the heart. So we're also assisting Tara Rama with their needs. Um <clears throat> And they have one bill and an empty pantry still. So the one bill is $154 for the Verizon bill. And they are also in need of people food and gas for the car. 
And I'm assuming people food means human food because they got a lot of cat people, but they did get some food for them. But they need to take care of themselves with the food that something to chew on. So <laughs> they need something to chew on. So thank you for taking some action here and making a donation to Tom Rama so that they can eat. And here's how we do that. You want to go to Rama's PayPal account. You can you can link to it either from one of the updates or by going to rainbowroundtable.net. And there on the home page, click on the menu grid, and you'll see a donate link near the bottom of that list. And as you click on the donate button, that'll take you to Rama's paper or the Rainbow Roundtable PayPal account where you can make that donation in any amount. Um, and then also, if you want to access the French option, you need to put in the email there for that site as a friends and family gift. So it eliminates the commercial charges. That email address is Coran, K O R A N, 9999 at hotmail.com. So thank you. Either way is perfect. We're grateful for your donations. So much gratitude that, um, to assist Tar- And it's an honor to assist Tar and Rama in this way. They, they definitely work 24 seven, uh, pretty much all the time. So they're always on it and plugged into what needs to be done. So Lots of gratitude for them and what they do, and so much gratitude for all of you for making that happen in a good way for them. So, if you're sending something to Tara and Rama, please let them know by sending Rama an email, and that email address is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 999-39 at Comcast.net. Or is it dot .com? Yeah, net. Anyway... <laughs> Um, that's the email address. Let them know what you sent when you sent it, and then also as you need it, the mailing address is as follows: Ram R A M D Berkowitz B E R K O W I T Z, Post Office Box two eight zero two eighty, and that's in Santa Cruz, New Mexico. 87567 is the zip. I'll say it again. Post Office Box 280, 280, Post, um, <laughs> Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. So there you have it, all the information. And, oh, my gosh, what we have going here? We have a talking stick that I'm going to send off, but first want to say, again, 13 thank yous, honey in the heart, long life, no evil. And this talking stick... It just has that sort of truth. It's 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 a talking stick of we the people. So everybody who represents <laughs> that looked like Bernie Sanders trying to get on the stick, but uh, <laughs> representing we the people today, I saw him do that. Um, yeah, the labor people. So we're, we got the workers all wanting to to cheer everybody on. Plenty of fairies and feathers. The Excalibur. Excalibur is there. We've got um, Quetzalcoatl and the Emerald Serpent Feathered One. And oh my gosh, there's all the help you can imagine. All all the masters, the Metatron and Saint Germain, they're all like cheering everything on and sending in their 
bits and pieces on the stick. So greetings, Tara and Rama. <laughs> Here comes this talking stick. It's pretty magical and full of a lot. Greetings. Greetings. Thank you, Rainbird, so much. Thank you, Rainbird. And thank you, everyone, so much. Yes, thank you, everyone. Um, yes, we can. The uh, build-up today of, ex- you might say, exposure of the characters in the play out there on January 6, 2021. Uh, they're getting sentenced. And uh, Chris Hayes was saying, you know, he was, uh, I said this yesterday too, but he wasn't in favor of just piling up the years, you know, in prison. Yes, our justice system needs a upgrade. A big one. Lady Master Mott knows how to do that. Like um, the Proud Boy sentencing is what they're doing first. That other group, what's the name of the other group? Proud Boys and... Oath Keepers. Oath Keepers, yeah, that's another one. There's somebody from the Oath Keepers that's been in a prison self-serving time already. But this is the Proud Boy big deal here. Um, And started out with Joseph Biggs. And the prosecutors asked for 33 years for him. And he received 17. And Chris had said, you know, he said, you know, yeah, I, I think that's ridiculous. To, especially as you know that people are killed in prison. People are beaten by the cops and the guards in prison. They're experimented on by the deep state and turned into droids. I'm not kidding. Yeah. There are weird stories out there. More that, you know, it goes right into the X-Files. We know uh, someone that was killed in there on purpose. Yeah. And then someone else died because of what they did in there too so that's two of our friends and I'm just saying this is not working it's 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 about you know restoring them to wholeness and uh, um, giving them another chance yes you serve time but you learn a profession and you learn how to have discussions deep deep discussions about and dialogues about you know, changing the lives thereof together and sharing at a deep heart level. And there are a few people that have been doing that. I've had discussions with friends around the neighborhoods, you know, that know people in prisons and also know people that are going in there and doing some really good work. Yeah, we need a whole lot more of that. Anyway, so this guy was the leader of the band, of the Proud Boys, so he got 17 instead of 33. So that's one over half uh, of what they wanted to give him. That's pretty interesting. 
And then Zachary Rail, he, the the prosecutors wanted thirty, he received fifteen. And then Ethan Nordine, the prosecutors wanted twenty-seven for him, he received eighteen. And Dominic Pizzola today, those those three were yesterday, and then today Dominic Pizzola. Uh, they requested 20 for him. He received 10. And on the Chris Hayes shows, Chris is saying, a federal judge sentenced one of the most infamous figures in the January 6th attack on the Capitol to 10 years in prison. Proud boy Dominique Pizzola was convicted of six felonies for his activities that day, along with several other members of the far right quasi militia group. On January 6th, Pizzola was the first person to breach the Capitol building, smashing open a window with a riot shield he had stolen from the police officer. And there was some terrible things that they did to that police officer, too. Um, I think he lost consciousness. He, he survived, but not by much. And inside the building, you know, he led a whole group of rioters through the halls where they came upon, you know, Chuck Grassley. Well, Chuck Grassley is a criminal and a half. Yeah. He went over there and told all kind, sold all kinds of nuclear secrets to the Israelis. I thought it was to Iran. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> no. Yeah, it could be. No. Uh, who knows? Who knows? All I know is he got paid well to do things that are not exactly becoming of a member of Congress? Oh, there's a whole bunch of stories there, too. Yeah. There's no such thing as democracy when you're using uh, you might say violence as a prescribed way of life coming from the pulpit of the, of the I was going to say of the Pope, but of the President <laughs> of the United States. Violence was the key tool. And these proud boys, and this, this character, Dominique, he, he was in tears and saying he made the worst decision of his life and all of that, and he still got what he got. And then he, when they took him from there and they handed him out, he turned around and he said, he, he gave that fist punch up in the air, and he said, Drumpf won. So that was his retaliatory uh, moment, statement, statement yes. Uh, and this is not about, a, a, a democracy is about having dialogue and moving into a direction of, more, more peaceful ways 
of living as uh, Rainbird was saying too away from war and war um, as we are to have conversations and communications with members of our galactic family and other members mm. of the galactic federation the galactic confederation there are so many worlds within worlds as Patty Cotto Robles describes it and the xenophobic ideas that have been put out by the Republican Party they they it's about power without love and like Jimi Hendrix said when the love of power is overcome by the power of love then there will be peace mm -hmm. and you know they killed Jimi Hendrix because he started to talk about Lord Monka and Lord Corton on Mars and that's a whole other story <laughs> oh my mm -hmm. um, there were t today there was a M1.21 class flare and there was uh, radio blackouts and communication blackouts throughout most of Southeast Asia and this is big and this super typhoon uh, I forget the name of it it is uh, like going right into Hong Kong it looked pretty hairy with what I saw on my phone and it is about these it's climate disruption as we can continue to talk to the elements and there was uh, an ancient story from Babylon Enki was the god of water according to that civilization and his consort was Nin Herzog and it's a whole other story about um, Ea Ea was another name for Earth and Iridu Iraq and oh my god there, there's so many issues unfolding right now that I keep hearing about skirmishes going on in Iraq right now and the only reason that's going on is because we put our footprint there and um, it's a big deal it's about the stargates and goddesses here I passed the talking stick <laughs> thank you all um, just to say a little more about and then we're going to play something from uh, Aurora, Aurora Ray yeah it's very exciting. It um, is. The energies are really, they're moving us up in spite of our best efforts to stay down in the dumpies. <laughs> yeah. 
The U.S. assesses long sentences more often than other nations. The U.S. average sentence, 12.2 years, was double the next highest nation, Hungary, which had an average sentence of six years. And Hungary's a fascist state. Yeah. What's his name? Orban. Orban. He is a total fascist, and actually, uh, the Republicans invited him over here down in Texas, and he said, let me tell you how it's done. And all the Republicans went, take Nick, take good, good listening ears and their notes, you know, because that's what they want here, too. And that goes to a, just a little bit of a description that what's going on in, in Maui is that And again, this is very challenging because. For nine minutes. Is that how long that is? No, it's seven fifty-one. No, how many minutes? Oh, this is almost six minutes. Okay, I got three minutes. <laughs> Just that, what they're doing is they're setting up a way to get the people to not like. Uh, some very high political offices of people that are black. And the three they want to kill is Oprah Winfrey, Michelle Obama, and Barack Obama. And they've been setting it up all along behind the scenes because, well, as you don't go along with the agenda and you're making a ton of money and you're getting wealthy from them allowing you into certain positions and then you use the power in a way that they don't like. Uh, and then they, they do everything you, they can to uh, just smear as much as possible and... It's a very double entente because these wealthy ones um, have also accrued many riches and have accrued, uh, Oprah in particular has bought millions and millions of dollars worth of properties on Maui. Uh, one was a $10 million property and another was another $10 million property and those two properties were in Lahaina. And uh, and then there was a 300 and some million property dollar property somewhere else in Maui and another couple of hundred dollar property somewhere else in Maui. <clears throat> so that looks really un unbelievably not good, especially since the idea is to create what kind of uh, cities are these again, Rama? Smart cities. Smart cities. I think China has something like that, smart cities, and they and they work with the 5G and okay. this thing called the Internet of Things. But we don't want to talk anymore because we won't be able to play that. Right. We the just AI want to say you only, get to, you only get a 15-mile in diameter uh, travel area. You cannot leave that 15 square miles. And then you get to have... You don't have to pay for, I mean, you've got digital currency, you can don't have to work, and you have 
quote unquote, the life of Riley, but you are contained. You're like in a a, 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 a prison case. In the matrix. Yeah, and when you're completely mind controlled and controlled, but cancel clear, let's play this Aurora thing. Here we go. The great solar flash approaches fast. feel it deep in my bones. The great solar flash event is coming, and it's going to be the most incredible thing we've ever experienced. Some people might be scared or skeptical, but I know it's real. I've done my research, I've talked to the Galactic Federation, and I've seen the signs. This isn't some conspiracy theory or wild speculation. This is the truth. Whether you believe it or not, very shortly, a powerful energy surge will be released into our solar system. On an average day, the sun produces balls of gas called solar flares and sends tons of ionized particles into space at speeds approaching the speed of light. On the day of this event, the sun will emit a coronal mass ejection, or CME, which is a giant cloud of highly magnetized plasma that travels through space at about 900 miles per second. The world we live in today is plagued with wars, conflicts, and division. But after the event, all of that will be a thing of the past. The new world will be a paradise where everyone will live in harmony without any fear of war or violence. The great solar flash event, in all its splendor, will be a wondrous moment in history. It will be the impetus for an unprecedented shift in the way that people think and feel about the universe. No longer will we see the world as separate from ourselves, but rather as a part of us. We will finally see ourselves for who we really are, powerful beings who can alter our fate and leave a lasting impact on the world around us. Our inner selves will also undergo a significant transformation after this event. We will be more connected to the universe and understand the true meaning of our existence. We will be filled with joy love, and peace. We will experience a oneness with the universe that we have never felt before. We must embrace this change with open arms and welcome the new world with hope and optimism. It is a chance for us to transcend the limitations of our physical world and experience something truly magical. The great solar flash event will be a moment of awakening. A time when we will be able to tap into our innermost potential and achieve a level of consciousness that we have never reached before. It is up to us to prepare ourselves for this event and to take the necessary steps to ensure that we are ready for the transformation that is about to take place. As the great solar flash event approaches, it is time for us to prepare for the inevitable. This event will not only bring an end to the old world as we know it, but will also mark the beginning of a new era of peace and harmony. So what are you waiting for? Are you going to sit back and watch as the world changes around you? Or are you going to take action? This is your chance to be part of something amazing and to witness history in the making. Don't let fear or doubt hold you back. Embrace the possibility and prepare yourself for what's to come. Many people are anxiously awaiting the great solar flash and the transformation it will bring. I would like to communicate with everyone that this event will change your life, but it's not what you think. 
There is no need to be alarmed or fearful. All we have to do is wait for the right moment, collect ourselves, and be prepared for what's to come. We must let go of our fears, our doubts, and our anxieties, and embrace the change with open hearts and mind. Only then can we truly be a part of the new world and experience the true beauty and wonder that it has to offer. Perceiving reality is always a matter of the observer and the observed, but never has the division between them been as small as it is at this moment. The great solar flash event can bring humanity together on a level that we have never experienced before. It is up to us to work together during this event and pull off a giant leap of consciousness into the future, knowing full well that in our reality, what we believe to be true does become true. We are living in incredible times. The changes that are happening on our planet are well underway and we will certainly see much more in the coming days. Indeed, what I have stated here is simply a glimpse of the new age of enlightenment that awaits us all. You can be a part of something truly amazing, and I hope that you will join me for the ride. This is a time of great opportunity. There's so much in store for you, as well as for many others. Take this opportunity to look within yourself and find out who you really are. So, let us all come together and prepare for the great solar flash event with hope and optimism. Let us look forward to a new world, a new era of peace and harmony, and a new understanding of our place in the universe. The event is coming, and it is up to us to be ready for it. We love you dearly. We are here with you. We are your family of light. We are the Galactic Federation. Aho! This is a message to humanity from Aurora Ray, Ambassador of the Galactic Federation. Thank you, everyone. We go really quick, really quick. The phone numbers, Rama. Uh, 720-716-7301. And the pin code is 353863-POUND. We'll see you there on the conference, and we'll be right back here on BBS Radio, best radio in the universe at the top of the next hour. Namaste for now. See you there.
Precious Heart, thank you for joining us for our weekly vlog. Now that we've had some time to assimilate the latent abilities that each of our I am presences has recently activated within our 12 strands of fifth dimensional DNA, we are ready for the next step in the integration of our I am presence. Today, the company of heaven will guide us.
through an activity of life that will help us to accomplish this integration. If you have the heart call to participate, please join with me and lightworkers around the world. And we begin. Beloved, I am presence, walk through me. Open the door of understanding so that I may become increasingly aware of this sacred knowledge being revealed through my newly activated latent abilities. As I am growing in awareness, may my questing mind push through the denseness of materiality into the enlightened spiritual consciousness of my I am presence. As this enlightened state of awareness, let my sense of gratitude expand into a welcoming smile, a friendly greeting, and an expanding light. May I look upon all people with the eyes of love, knowing each as my friend, my brother, or sister, and not as a stranger. With this realization, my I am presence will spread its radiant light through my heart flame to everyone I meet. Oh, loving mind, thank you for the discovery that the consciousness of enlightenment and divine intelligence live within every person's heart flame. May the light of truth illuminate my mind as I grow in greater awareness that I am a beloved child of God and that all my Father Mother God have is my divine birthright. Beloved, I am presence as I place my hand in yours to travel this earth journey. Guide me into doing the simple things that bring happiness to others. Show me how to give wisely of myself and my talents in areas where they are truly needed and acceptable. Let me say with conviction, I can and I will as my thoughts dwell on the ascending spiral of right thinking, right feeling, and right action. As I can and I will become part of my enlightened consciousness, I open wide the gate of divine power within my immortal, victorious, threefold heart flame. Thank you for the blessings that are mine. Thank you for the opportunities that come my way. May I ever praise and bless, give and receive, love and be loved, and rejoice in knowing that the light of God is eternally victorious, and I am that light. I am one with all that is. 
and I rejoice in this glorious truth. Mother Earth and all life evolving upon her have ascended through the higher fifth-dimensional crystalline solar lion's gate, which pulsates in the atmosphere above the new solar Earth. On a cellular level, my I am presence and the I am presence of every person on Earth is taking the next gentle step and integrating it into the core of purity in every atomic and subatomic particle and wave of our earthly bodies. Now, on my holy breath, I go within to the divinity of my heart flame. I now realize that I have successfully walked through the challenges of my earthly experiences into the glory of a new day filled with the full gathered momentum of heaven on earth. Victory is mine. Victory is mine. Victory is mine. The obsolete patterns of separation and duality from the old earth have been dismantled and are in the process of being transfigured back into light. This has cleared the way for our Father Mother God to infuse the earth with brand new patterns of comprehensive divine love, which are reclaiming this planet. This unfathomable frequency of divine love has created the sacred space for humanity's I am presence to fully comprehend the newly activated latent abilities within our fifth dimensional DNA. As I breathe my holy breath in and out deeply and rhythmically, the next step of my I am presence's integration is being greatly amplified. Every electron, every atom, every subatomic particle and wave of my physical, etheric, mental and emotional bodies and all of the spaces in between the atoms and molecules of these bodies joyously receives and assimilates new multifaceted fifth dimensional crystalline solar light from my I am presence. As this occurs, my thoughts, feelings, words, and actions reflect the divine love Oneness, harmony, peace, abundance, and balance of God. This transfiguration is changing my physical reality into the love-based perfection of the new solar earth. 
this is a unique gift, a sacred opportunity, and it is being presented to every man, woman, and child on earth right here and right now. I contemplate this truth, and as this sacred knowledge resonates within me, my heart flame begins to expand and expand. Instantaneously, I am lifted into the fifth dimensional frequencies of light in the realms of illuminated truth. My feet are planted firmly on earth. Simultaneously, I am consciously aware of my Father, Mother, God, and the entire company of heaven, because we are one, and there is no separation. I am a being of resplendent light, now realizing the fullness of that light on every level of my existence. As I am lifted up, all life is lifted up with me. Therefore, I know that within my I am presence, I am now all of humanity, standing forth and realizing that we are sons and daughters of God. This means we are beloved and empowered God beings in every realm of consciousness and that our Father, Mother, God have all that is. With the amplified integration of our I am presence, we are now able to liberate to a new level our Father, Mother, God's light in every physical and chemical interaction within our earthly bodies. This is healing and recalibrating to a higher frequency all of the energy bonds within atoms and between atoms. This divine wisdom contains everything necessary to set straight the orbit, spin, and electronic charge of every cell, atom, and electron of life on Earth. All energy bonds within the atomic realm are now accelerating in vibration toward the frequency of infinite physical perfection. Every cell of life is now receiving and assimilating the sacred knowledge encoded within our I am presence and the newly activated latent abilities in our 12 fifth dimensional crystalline solar strands of DNA. Every person's I am presence 
is now liberating the sacred knowledge within our fifth dimensional DNA into every interaction within humanity and all of the energy bonds therein. These interactions include the relationships of all people, all organizations, all races, all religions, and all nations. All of these interactions are now being liberated into the harmony of a higher order of being, thus greatly expanding the influence of humanity's I am presence on earth. Now, through my fifth dimensional DNA, I am receiving clearly the divine promptings, ideas, and concepts of my I am presence. I know that now I am a living, light-filled temple of invincible perfection, expressing my true state of enlightened consciousness as well as vibrant health, infinite abundance, eternal youth, divine love, truth, peace, and abounding joy. I am here and now tangibly manifesting my I am presence on earth with every breath I take. On my holy breath, I now gently return my consciousness to the room. I become aware of my earthly bodies and as I breathe in and out slowly and deeply, I allow the amplified divine energies from my I am presence and my latent abilities to be fully assimilated at a cellular level. I revel in the bliss of this moment on earth and I am grateful. I am grateful. I am eternally grateful. Beloved Father, Mother, God, all that is, I am. And so it is. Dear one, pay attention and your I am presence will guide you unerringly to the fulfillment of your divine plan and your highest good during this critical moment in Earth's ascension process.
Greetings, dear ones. I'm Cryon of Magnetic Service. Dear ones, this is controversial. The human brain is the only one on the planet, complete with the Pleiadian seating, that actually examines its own existence. Other consciousnesses do not. But let me give you some examples before we go further. So many humans have lovely, beautiful pets. Perhaps it's a dog or a horse. They would have a higher consciousness than perhaps other mammals. Not only that, but both of those mammals might be ingrained in a confluence of love with a human. And they would feel it. But if you take a look at a dog, even the most intelligent, they are happy just to be themselves. There is no questioning or perplexity that they're a dog. They don't look beyond themselves and then the consciousness says, why can't I be like my human master? They don't even recognize the human master as being a higher intelligence because they don't know what they don't know. They are satisfied and pleased to be who they are, being the dog that they are without questioning their existence because they can't. I give you this because it is an example of consciousness that is limited. You see this in the intelligence of other mammals. Sometimes in science, that's measurable. How smart is this animal? And they will measure it with tests. A horse is similar. It is pleased to be a horse. It does not think above itself because it cannot. It does not ponder the existence of the galaxy. It can't. There is no disappointment that it's not more than a horse. It doesn't know what it doesn't know. There is an absolute limit to what it can conceive and the paradigms that it's able to look at and understand. The human being cannot explain the workings of the internal combustion engine to a dog because it doesn't have that conceptual part of it that can be taught those things. There's a limit to what it can know. If you were able to go inside the mind of the dog, it wouldn't know that. It wouldn't know it's limited. It wouldn't know that it can't compute. Not really. There would be a limit on its consciousness that kept it from knowing what it doesn't know or even asking about it. And dear ones, I present all of this to you because that's who you are. There is a limit to what you can conceive what you can know or the paradigms that exist in the universe 
that you don't know and can't know about because the limit to your consciousness keeps you from understanding. The controversy of this is the intellectual who says that is not the way. We can intellectualize anything. We can examine our existence. We can talk to God. Therefore, we are the top. No, you're not. Dear humans, that's what is changing. The evolution of humanity from this point forward is not going to be an evolution where you get taller or literally smarter or even wiser. It's the evolution of consciousness itself. We're talking about paradigms you don't know about yet. Now let's stop for a moment and show you this. For the ancients in their wisdom recognized this. The ancients that my partner speaks of are the ancient Tibetans who very early on recognized the powers of numbers. And they, outside of others who had systems as well, developed their own system of numerology. They recognized very quickly the relationship of the numbers to the stars. They saw that God, as the master physicist, had put together many systems that made sense, that told about things that they could determine by using the numbers and the systems they develop. And through their wisdom, out came a numerological system that worked. One that is even used today in almost its original form. Combined with astrology and even some physics and some multi-dimensional aspects, it's alive and well today. It's also complicated. The Tibetan numerology was one of the first to consider a multidimensional aspect of the numbers. They actually asked the question, if one number sits next to another for a certain length of time for any reason, is it affected by it? And if so, what would the attributes be of both of them together having sat beside one another in a non-linear way. These are questions that seem to be heady and even beyond the scope of reason. It's multidimensional thinking, the beginning of it. But these are the ones who gave you the master numbers that my partner today teaches. And these are the ones who told you that 11, 22 and 33 were the only numbers that were identifiable and definable that you could understand because 44 through 99 is you don't know what you don't know. So there it is, a level, a ceiling to which you cannot rise beyond. And they prophesied this that there could come a day when 44 
all the way through 99 was not only possible to define, but would be developed by humanity. And then the big one, whereas the dog and the horse have a set consciousness limit, humans do not. When you came to this planet and the Pleiadians seated you, you had the concepts of 44 almost to 50. Those concepts are gone because free choice let humanity settle the place where it would go, the level it would seek on its own. And that became approximately 33. That is why you do not see anything above that today being defined or seen or thought of. And I will tell you, there is so much more. It's beginning to show. I will even discuss three items that you don't even think about that are possible. There are paradigms you cannot conceive of, but I can at least describe what they might entail. Because humanity is starting to grow. Because of passing the shift and the marker, the actual energy of the planet, the place and space that you are now going through, the changes in the magnetic grid so many years ago that I helped accomplish, all of this is a bed of information that will allow the growth of human consciousness beyond that which is 33. Let me ask you something. I want you to just relax for a moment and think with me. There were masters on this planet, masters. And they all did things which seemed to be miraculous, totally. Not just one, but many. There are some you don't even know about because the civilizations before you didn't carry over that information to you. There have been many masters, many like even the master of love that you think was only one. And when you look at their works, you see something and you look at who they were, you see something. They were able to change physical things into other physical things. Miracles. They were able to put their hands on a human being and reignite life itself, sometimes the healing of a lifetime. Humans would sit at their feet for no reason other to feel the field of love and compassion that simply poured out of the masters. Some of the things that seem so odd and miraculous are alive today and still practiced in obscure parts of the planet, such as levitation, which would seem to be the control over the relationship of the parts of the atom to create designer magnetics and gravity change. Things like the obeyance of rock to a human hand that can push through it from a master in India. Still alive today 
in certain kinds of masters. And I ask you, how is that possible? And the answer has always been magic and miracles. No human has said, well, perhaps, just perhaps, that's normal. And we are hobbled. <laughs> perhaps, just perhaps, that's physics. Not magic, not mythology. But that doesn't happen. Instead, it's beyond anything that's possible because you don't know what you don't know. And that shows you the level you're at. Let's talk about the expansion of conceptual consciousness. Paradigm shifts. It's not that you get smarter or wiser. It's that there is the aha eventually of what you might be able to do that is common and natural and you should have had all along. You cannot think above that because you don't know what you don't know. And the things that happen even within your human body, you say, well, that's just the way it is. Even the highest thinkers don't say, wow, that's not right. It should be different. Instead, they simply look and say, this is the way it is. Even the highest intellectual thinker who would ponder his existence in the galaxy doesn't ponder his existence with his chemistry. <laughs> Let's talk about it. What's next? I'm going to give you three. Two explainable and one not. And even the ones that are explainable, I don't have the words for the paradigm that they represent. All I have is a description of the result. And the reason I can't do better than that is the same reason a dog cannot ponder his existence in the universe. Some of these things are not ponderable yet, and yet they're coming. They're coming. And some of the basic ones, dear ones, when it's over and this becomes something you recognize and realize, you'll slap your heads and say, why didn't anybody think of this? Because you've gone to a new level and you're going there now. Some of you already beginning the thought of it. Inside the human body, the way it works, there is an acknowledgement that the psyche, the consciousness, the highest brain that is, is clueless on what's going on inside your body. Example, here comes a virus. Maybe it's a simple cold. Maybe it's something bigger. It invades your body. And the moment the invasion occurs, whether it's respiratory or gastronomic, immediate reaction is the creation of a body alarm. The body knows they're there. It's designed for that. White blood cells race to the place where the 
the bacteria has entered or the virus is present, doing its best to fight. If you are inside your body and you want to linearize these things, you'd have alarm bells going off. The body would know things are happening. What is the human doing at that moment? Whistling along, walking to the store, not aware of any of it. Question, does that seem right to you? <laughs> Or does it seem like perhaps there might be some disconnect with something that should have been? Perhaps it's coming. But humans don't think about that. They say, well, the body does this and the consciousness does this. You've done a good job on hiding something you should have had all along. Because you can't think above the idea of a paradigm that they should have been together and they will be. Now here's what you can't imagine. Here's where it's going. Here is a paradigm that exists in the 44 that someday will become common to all. When the virus starts, you know it. That hiding part of your body called innate, that part that you muscle test to find out what's going on, the part that you use the homeopathy for to signal what to do. Why is it separate from consciousness? Did you ever ask that? And the answer is no, because you can't think above it, can you? There is not a big element of thought in a building someplace studying that, is there? That you don't know what you don't know. There is no thought that perhaps, just perhaps, It ought to be a bit higher than it is. The human is the only mammal on the planet that's tunable. That is to say, you can be 33 today, 44 tomorrow, 77 coming. All of the other mammals are born the way they are without the free choice that is spiritual. A choice to know that which is God inside or to touch the face of God. But you do, and you have it, and you are. Tunable, meaning consciousness can come and go, rise and fall. But you pass the marker, dear ones. The first civilization on the planet to go beyond itself into unknown predicted territory. The first civilization to have no predictions for the future because all of the other ones have fallen flat on the floor because they didn't happen. There'll come a time, number one, where the innate will join with consciousness. And if somebody asks you, how are you doing? You will answer for the innate because you will have the same exact knowledge of what is going on at the chemical level of your body. If there is a growing cancer, you will know it in the first day. You won't have to wait for something to hurt. Does it make sense to you that you are so disconnected from your own cellular structure? And most humans will say, well, no, I never thought about it. Exactly.
but you will. That's the first of three paradigms I want to talk about that you can't believe or don't think might change. And yet it's the most sensible one that you would know what your smart body knows. You'd be able to react because you're finely tuned enough to have consciousness know what cellular structure is doing within your own body and work with it accordingly. Can you imagine what a difference that would make in even day-to-day health care, knowing what's going on instantly, having the self tell you when a food is not servicing you, having cellular structure that say, you know, your Akash is not supporting the food that you're eating today. Why don't you try the food from the last lifetime? It doesn't feel good, does it? Your innate knows this now, but it's not talking to you. There'll come a day when there will be no innate. There'll simply be you combined. Number two, this gets harder. What if you had a cellular structure that was so vibrant and so connected with nature, with everything that is, with the oneness of all things, that no disease could ever invade? Because disease is low energy, low consciousness, low vibration, and the human at that level would not be. Welcome to 55. You come into a planet with a chemistry that works so high and so well with extended life, with wisdom to keep it that way on this planet without overpopulating, with knowing how to grow food in ways you never had before that nourishes the body like it never did before, where disease could not attach itself to you because there's a shield called high consciousness, a chemistry that vibrates so high that there's no such thing as cancer or any other thing that takes so many away from you today. Crying, I think you've gone too far. I don't think that's actually possible. It's magic. Oh, that's because you don't know what you don't know, dear ones. There'll come a day when physics itself will seem to be a plaything. When you can look at the complexity of all that is, and you can see the patterns within your Merkava aligning to the, to the actual patterns of the physics of the planet and manipulate the things that are benevolent that you need to manipulate. You don't understand what I'm talking about, do you? I understand that you don't understand. I wanted to show you the reaction, and I got it. The reaction was, crying, what are you talking about? talked about the human soul and a relationship with it that eventually you would have. I called it soul coherence. And because it is so far away from anything that is real to you today, 
You didn't even understand the concept. I cannot give it to you any clearer today except as I did before. A time when you are so connected to your higher self, you have one foot on the other side of the veil, one foot on this planet. You smile like a master smiles. Welcome to 88. You are part of the planet. The planet is part of you. You're part of the sky. It's part of you. Physics is you. You are part of it. You are a master on this planet and it's normal. If I showed it to you today, you would cower in the corner and say, it's angelic. An angel has entered the room. I would say, no, it's you in the future. You see your face there? <laughs> Didn't you recognize it? The paradigms start to change. The ones you've learned in metaphysics start to change. They get altered. They get grander. A confusing channel for many, perhaps. But if you get nothing else from this message, get this. This is your future, a potential. Based upon what you've done, where it's going, and what others have done before you in your circumstance. You can change it on a dime. That's free choice. But the ball is rolling to such a degree right now. The generation after generation after generation will see the shift and you will begin to see it in your kids and they will see it in their kids and each generation will say, look at the children. They're different, not just one, not just two. And that is where the shift begins to be seen first. But I'll say it again, old soul. You don't have to wait to be reborn. Instead, the invitation has always been there to relax and know that you are a piece of God. Relax and know that you're cared for and loved. Relax and know that there's far, far more than you know. And that's a good thing because those things are benevolent, beautiful. The masters of this planet showed them to you. The reason is so you could see they were human, and so were you, all of them. They were not magic. They were not from anywhere else. They were born like you were born, and they were here to say this, look, look, look. This is you in the future, and all things are possible. When you start understanding that you are a piece of everything there is, a oneness with everything. What a story. What a remarkable idea. May the legacy of this work and the channel someday be preserved. And when their ancient history, they can be trotted out and you will smile and you will say, you know, <laughs> he was right. And it will be a grand day for the planet to realize that the evolution of human consciousness, the elimination of war, the understanding that you're all one, 
with the same kind of purpose of love will be seen and recognized worldwide. And so it is. And so it is. And there is one, only one of us here. And we are all servants of peace. Greetings, Mother. Greetings. In the light. In the light of the most radiant one. In the darkness of the Christ. And only in the darkness of the Christ. We invoke the loving energies of Saint Germain. And we ask at this time for that oneness of beingness to grow in the hearts of all beings. And may we all continue to pass every test. And may peace continue to prevail on earth in the face of all that which is called war war no more Sarah now I pass this talking stick to you mother here it comes greetings children of Ra what a time to be in a body mm-hmm. to be here mm. it is a glorious time at the same moment it's precarious gotta send more love all the situations this of which Corian speaks this innate we all know This story is complete. Even though the old timelines want to keep you 
in the matrix. They cannot. It's it's a dead horse. <laughs> Speaking of horses, what a story. Each creation is infinitely more. Moving up the spiral in consciousness. This moment we are in is so special with what's unfolding. Mm -hmm. The unloading of the wisdom of the Akashic records is being fed into our consciousness 24-7 right now. This is because we asked to show up and the dark side know their time's up. Mm-hmm. It is a grand cycle of completion. Mm. And everybody in this passion play knows their parts. It's hmm. Very awesome to be whole. More and more stories are being brought forth of how we can change our reality. It's thought form energy instead of creating war. We can create peace. Change your point of view. Change your consciousness. Mm -hmm. 
our point of view. Everyone's already made it. How we do this in this now moment is that's the big one. Peace is the order of the day. What got us here was these these thought forms are children that went awry thinking I could be masters of the universe. Mm. Let alone masters themselves. With great wisdom comes great responsibility. It is about healing a planet. Not just any planet. We made a conscious choice to show up here Mm -hmm. in this divine plan knowing full well we get to ascend with this planet. is a huge effing deal. Mm-hmm. Not every day this happens. And in this particular now moment, we get to do this with joy and ecstasy rather than violence and war. It's a choice inside here. Like we have said many times, we have watched civilizations come and go like grains of sand. This time we make it. Don't take my word for it. Our word. Can feel it inside yourself. Mm-hmm. Look around. See the changes that are going on. This is a lot bigger than anything. we can put into words because we're all part 
participating in this. It's a group effort. And this is the key. Love is the answer. A wayward children would rather not dwell upon that thought. Mm -hmm. Let's say it is what it is. Can't get past it. Because it's, it's the creation story of what's unfolding. Each time the sun lets out more flares of golden radiant light. That is new energy that is being brought into manifestation that can interact with us. The electrons, protons, particles. There's an intelligence within each particle that is so vast we don't know the words to put it into a form except this form called Merkaba vehicle. It's amazing to be here each moment and watch the progress that's unfolding in this realm. It's happening faster than we know how to talk about. Mother, we had this report we shared with everybody about the uh, Smart City project in Maui. And Penny piped up that there's a Smart City project in a city over there in England. And there's one in Hong Kong. Oh. It is getting hit with this super typhoon right now maybe in the last 12 24 oh hours oh my goodness and uh mm, let's say there were reports of people in the high rises where the buildings were going back and forth like a pendulum <gasps> maybe they made it maybe they didn't we're just saying uh, gotta um. build domes 
spherical structures. Yes. It's what life is. And Hicks. The particles of life are spherical. Bucky Fuller, triangles hold their shape. Yes. That's how you make domes, with triangles. What we can say about smart cities. Hmm. All we can see is this a story about the machine city in the matrix. Ultimately, it knew it had to fall because the divine spark of creation does not come from a super collider in Switzerland. Ah, Higgs boson. Hmm. Stern, all these stories about AI. You got the best AI right here. Why are you saying that about that right there? This connected up with the divine. We are creator gods and goddesses of the most high. Yeah, but we're not AI. No, we're not AI. Why'd you say that, bro? What we're saying is... Talk to your amino acid computer right here. This body. It has the answers. Don't have to go ask a machine. Does not make logic. Hmm. How can cities be smart when they illogical processes that are what we could say about all of this Maybe there are souls that are so traumatized from what they have gone through in the last 26,826 years. Want to escape from this. Live inside a machine. Doesn't sound quite promising, does it? Mother, we've got to intervene on the civilization's development at the moment. It's going down in the wrong direction. I know we're doing the work. I know that. I'm just saying, where's that flash? You know, Aurora Ray said it's really close. 
it is very close yeah. in our system of worlds called Sun System of Saw. I'm not going to get... You don't need any smart cities. Heavenly <laughs> days. What an oxymoron. It is a bit in the realm of a bad Spider-Man comic. We can put it that way. Why would you want to put yourself in a city that maybe knows what you're thinking and they've got drones and military oh, I was I heard something today remember John Pilger we used to play him I can't remember what year it was pretty long ago yes and he he made the announcement then that we had 400 military bases around the world now we have 750, Mother. What's wrong with this picture? Does not make logic. That's well, that's what they've been doing subtly while they're giving us all kinds of ups and downs and ins and outs and hoop-de-hoops and loop-de-loops while they keep their nose busy doing what they're doing to set up the takeover of a planet. They are, let's say. <laughs> Bernie Sanders is on all night tonight. I'm really happy. The divine spark of creation is this wondrous, magical moment that no machine can create. That's the mystery, the magic of this adventure mm -hmm. about ascension. Mm. And no one can do it for you. Got to do it yourself. That's the choice. Yet it is inevitable we will all ascend. Even our wayward children will have that experience of what it is about to face the music as it were. Mm -hmm. It's only about love, and we got light years to go. Better be on our way. Well, I just want to check in with you, Mother, that um, that um, the light has been prepared to. Uh, 
counter indicates. Yeah, and well, well prepared, well ahead of the game. Let's put it that way, of the dark plans of mice and men. Yes, we are from your future. We'll say it again. We know how this story ends. <laughs> this is why we are here. Rejoice for your salvation is at hand. It is you. You are the key to your ascension. Ain't nobody gonna do it for you. That's true. We gotta do it. It's about loving ourselves so completely. When you are in that ecstatic state, of bliss follow your bliss <laughs> where does it go goes back to source no machine can create that this is true they want to yet they cannot because it is about the divinity that is the magic of this mm -hmm. and can create all the false ideologies and gods. <clears throat> Nobody was ever born into sin. That's the first thing to get. <laughs> what is that? It is about the way of getting in someone else's way home. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're not going to get in anybody's way. Everybody's got that choice. Mm -hmm. Yes, and there's only one of us here, and for every one of us, that I've heard this many years ago, there's at least 200 people that, that we touch. So that's a 200 to 1 ratio of spreading love and peace and community. And it exponentially goes out into the quantum field. And this is why it comes back in this moment now. Mm. It's that never-ending figure eight infinity mm -hmm. better be on our way Amy oh, oh you know what I was well I was thinking when should we play that beautiful 11 minute piece of music oh maybe we go we play it and you play Amy okay you want to play it now and then play Amy right after it on that same screen. Oh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Amy. Yes. Okay, so, Mother. Yes, we can. No smart cities. No more COVID epidemics. No more anything. 
we are going to how do you say that we are going to um, we're going to kill him with love you know that long time ago kill him with love <laughs> meaning that no violence no violence. Well, wait a minute. The music here didn't play first, right? Mother's whispering. I wonder if I should play. Okay, well, while you're we doing that. Oh, are you ready? With the music? Ready, just a moment. <laughs> okay, Mother. So we're going to let Mother just go and she's gonna play the music well but we would like to hear what you have to say what rama has to say when he comes back let's let you go and do that and then she, rama can push the button for that how's that greetings in the light of the most radiant one kadosh 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 Kadosh, 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 Adonai, Sabayah. Kadosh, 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 Adonai, Sabayah. Eliyahu, Eliyahu, Eliyahu. Yohe, Yohe, Yavah, Adonai, Vasu, Barakas. Namaste, Mother. Namaste. Only love. That's really the nature of a human being. is the power. Mm. <laughs> Hi, Rama. Oh. Where did thou thus go? Huh. Um, Mount Kailash to just feel the energy of Lord Shiva and what's unfolding here as he brings in this transformational change. Um, I just remember that Omadni Padmi Hum. Um, I was just hearing that being chanted wherever I was near Mount Kailash, just Hearing the Omadne Padmihum, Omadne Padmihum, Omadne Padmihum. Omadne Padmihum. Yeah. It, it, it changes reality. That's what I could say. Mm-hmm. And that's what is needed right now. A change of heart. 
Okay, thank you, Mother, and Rama, through Mother, and you, Rama, well, let's do the change of heart. Tell everybody what this is called. This is uh, Radiant Rose, Ascended Master's monthly meditation with the Goddess of Love. All these beings, Goddess of Love, Goddess of Mercy, Goddess of liberty, of victory. These are actual living, living immortal angels Mm -hmm. that work with Archangel Michael in the physical Mm -hmm. on this planet right now. And they're very busy right now. Yes. Okay, so call them in with this beautiful music. Here we go. Eleven minutes.
Okay, right into Democracy Now!, everybody. Thank you, Rama. That was such a beautiful uh, interlude. So keep this energy flowing in as and blaze the violet fire as we listen to Amy. Here we go. This is a democracy now. What do you want to call him? Give me a name. Give me a white name. White supremacist and right like supremacist. Proud boys. Stand back and stand by. Nearly three years after Donald Trump called on the far right Proud Boys to stand by, one of its leaders, Joseph Biggs, has been sentenced to 17 years in prison for his role in the January 6th insurrection. Another Proud Boy got 15. We'll get the latest. Then we go to Minnesota, where water protectors on trial facing five years in prison for engaging in a peaceful protest against the Enbridge Line 3 tar sands oil pipeline. I'm here for my daughter and my daughter's daughter and all their children and grandchildren. I'm here because there is a real climate crisis and nobody seems to care. Then, as cleanup efforts begin after Hurricane Idalia, we'll speak to Rihanna Gunwright, one of the architects of the Green New Deal. There's a moral imperative to make sure that in the green transition, the same people who bear the brunt of our reliance on fossil fuels are not the same people who uh, the green transition is being built on their backs. And we'll look at why thousands of Afghan evacuees are being arbitrarily detained overseas as they wait for approval to come to the United States. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Trump pleaded not guilty to 13 felony charges over efforts to overturn his 2020 election loss in Georgia. Trump also requested his case be tried separately from his 18 co-defendants. Trump's legal team argued an October 23rd start date for the trial does not leave enough time to prepare, while some of his co-defendants have asked for a speedy trial. Meanwhile, the release date for the Fulton County Grand Jury's final report is set for September 8th. The judge said Trump's Georgia trial will be televised and live streamed. In related news, Georgia's Republican Governor Brian Kemp dismissed calls to launch impeachment proceedings against Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis, who brought the racketeering case. One of Trump's Georgia co-defendants, lawyer John Eastman, appeared on Fox News this week, where he admitted to pressuring then-Vice President Mike Pence to delay certification of the election. I explicitly told Vice President Pence in the Oval Office on January 4th that even though it was an open issue under the circumstances we had, I thought it was the weaker argument and it would be foolish to exercise such power even if he had it. What I recommended, and I've said this repeatedly, is that he accede to requests from more than 100 state legislators in the swing states to give them a week to try and sort out the impact of what everybody acknowledged was illegality in the conduct of the election. A federal judge sentenced two former leaders of the Proud Boys, Joseph Biggs and Zachary Real, to 17 and 15 years in prison, respectively, for the seditious conspiracy to keep Donald Trump in power by attacking the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. The sentences are some of the stiffest yet over January 6, though prosecutors had sought 30 plus years for the two men. A lawyer for Biggs spoke after his sentence. 
If your president tells you your country's been stolen, the country that people fought and died for, people are trying to take your vote from you, how are you supposed to react to that? And these people reacted violently and to their detriment. Um, I, I think these cases are grotesquely overcharged. Both men broke down in court. Two other Proud Boys, Dominic Pizzola and Ethan Ordean, are receiving their sentences today. Former leader of the Proud Boys, Enrique Tarrio, will be sentenced Tuesday. We'll have more after headlines. The African Union has suspended Gabon's membership following Wednesday's military coup and ouster of the longtime president, Ali Bongo. The UN has also condemned the coup, but many Gabonese have voiced support for the military takeover. It's important to remember that we've been waiting for this release for several years. The Bongo regime has been sharing out Gabon's wealth for several years. They've promoted corruption and unemployment, so we're tired of it. We've been waiting for this with real satisfaction. It's a real pleasure. Today, I'm proud to say that Gabon's independence took place on August 30th, 2023. Meanwhile, main opposition leader Albert Ando Osa who lost his challenge to Ali Bongo in Saturday's contested election in Gabon, is calling for the junta to complete the ballot count and hand over power to civilians. In the Democratic Republic of the Congo, AFP reports at least 48 people were killed by Congolese soldiers Wednesday as armed forces cracked down on a protest against United Nations peacekeepers in the city of Goma. Dozens of others were wounded, while over 150 people were reportedly arrested. The demonstration was led by a Christian sect. UN peacekeeping efforts in the DRC have been widely criticized, as many communities say their presence has done little to prevent conflict. Violence has soared in recent years, particularly in the eastern region of the DRC. Chile's government is launching a nationwide search for over a thousand people who are forcibly disappeared during the U.S.-backed military dictatorship of General Augusto Pinochet. Chilean President Gabriel Boric made the announcement Wednesday ahead of the 50th anniversary of the U.S.-backed coup that overthrew the democratically elected President Salvador Allende, who died in the palace September 11, 1973. Survivors of the Pinochet regime have long demanded justice. We had the hope that they were alive, but as years went by, we realized they weren't. At least they should have told us what happened to them, what was done to them. That is the worst part of these 50 years. In Colombia, a truth and justice tribunal found the U.S. trained general, Mario Montoya, responsible for 130 extrajudicial killings and disappearances between 2002 and 3. Montoya is accused of deliberately mislabeling civilians killed by his soldiers as enemy combatants as part of the false positives scandal. Over 6,000 civilians, including children and disabled people, were killed by Colombian soldiers from 2002 to 2008, who then classified their victims as fighters from the FARC. That's the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia. The Biden administration Thursday sent another deportation flight to Haiti with at least 60 asylum seekers. This came a day after the State Department urged U.S. citizens to immediately leave Haiti due to worsening violence. Immigrant rights advocates condemned the deportations. This is Gerline Joseph, executive director of the Haitian Bridge Alliance. To really highlight the inhuman nature of those deportations, I want to share one of the people who got deported this morning is a woman who has been in detention since February. She has been dealing with chronic pain, extreme uh, medical uh, uh, um, issues. 
she fainted three times while in detention in Florida. Upon return from the hospital, she was put on a plane and deported this morning. She is stuck with nowhere to go. And her family in the United States have been calling and asking to find some help for her. Tens of thousands of Haitian asylum seekers, including children, have been deported since President Biden took office, despite international condemnation and calls for humanitarian relief as Haiti faces a spiraling political and economic crisis with gangs gaining control of large portions of the country. The U.S. State Department has approved an $80 million military aid package to Taiwan under a program typically used for sovereign states. Beijing has condemned the move, seen as another challenge to its sovereignty over Taiwan. Beleaguered Supreme Court Justice Thomas Clarence, uh, Clarence Thomas acknowledged he took four flights on the private jet of conservative megadonor Harlan Crow last year as part of his annual financial filing. He also amended previous filings with allegedly inadvertently omitted information. This comes after ProPublica and others revealed Thomas had failed to disclose at least 38 luxury trips from Crow and three other right-wing billionaires for decades. Justice Thomas and his family also sold three properties to Crow, Rhode Island Democratic Senator Sheldon White House said, quote, this late come effort at cleanup on aisle three won't deter us from fully investigating the massive secret right wing billionaire influence in which this court is admired. Texas's ban on gender affirming care for trans youth goes into effect today after the state Supreme Court overruled an earlier decision by a Texas judge who found the ban unconstitutional. The law will not only block transgender youth from accessing new care, it will force those already on transition medications to wean off them. Rights groups are appealing. Separately, a federal judge temporarily blocked a Texas law that would district that would restrict drag performances while the court reviews the case. Meanwhile, Canada has issued a travel advisory for its LGBTQ plus citizens visiting the United States due to the recent flurry of discriminatory laws passed by Republicans. And in San Francisco, tech workers and other protesters gathered outside the Google Cloud Next conference this week to call out Google's contract with Israel, which uses the cloud service for its public sector and military, including to surveil Palestinians. This is activist Ariel Koren. We are here representing the No Tech for Apartheid campaign. We're a coalition of Google workers and community members who have coalesced to send a strong message to the company that Google workers are refusing to allow their labor to be used to power apartheid violence against Palestinian people. Project Nimbus is a $1.2 billion artificial intelligence and computer technology agreement between Google, Amazon, web services, and the Israeli government, which went into effect in July 2021. A statement from the movement No Tech for Apartheid said, quote, technology should be used to bring people together, not enable apartheid, ethnic cleansing, and settler colonialism, unquote. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Two leaders of the far-right Proud Boys have been given lengthy prison sentences for their role in the January 6th insurrection. Joseph Biggs, who is a top lieutenant in the Proud Boys, received a 17-year sentence. Zachary Reel, the former head of Proud Boys in Philadelphia, got a 15-year sentence. They had been convicted of seditious conspiracy in May. But the sentences are only about half as long 
as what federal prosecutors had recommended. The U.S. District Court Judge Timothy Kelly did agree to apply a terrorism enhancement in calculating their sentences. Judge Kelly, who was appointed by Donald Trump, talked about what happened on January 6, 2021, saying, quote, that day broke our tradition of peacefully transferring power. The mob brought an entire branch of government to heal, he said. After the sentencing, Biggs and Reel's attorney, Norman Pattis, spoke to reporters outside the courthouse. Where's Donald Trump in all of this? He stood on the ellipse, basically told people, 74 million of his followers, the election's stolen, go to the go to the Capitol, fight like hell or you won't have a country anymore. Some people listened to him. Uh, were they supposed to know that he was full of hot air? Um, and was he full of hot air? I look forward to his trials. I look forward to seeing him testify someday. Do you blame President Donald Trump for January 6th and the actions of the Federalists? Do I blame him? As Judge Kelly noted in the REL sentencing, um, it's a mitigating factor, but not a justifying or excusing factor. But, you know, if your president tells you your country's been stolen, the country that people fought and died for, people are trying to take your vote from you, how are you supposed to react to that? And these people reacted violently and to their detriment. Ahead of the sentencing, both the Proud Boys broke down in court crying, with Rail saying, quote, I'm done peddling lies for other people who don't care about me. Seattle Proud Boys leader Ethan Nordine is scheduled to be sentenced today along with Dominic Pizzola. And on Tuesday, Enrique Terrio will be sentenced. He's the former national leader of the Proud Boys. Federal prosecutors are seeking a 33-year sentence for Terrio. Joining us now is Andy Campbell, senior editor at HuffPost, author of the book, We Are Proud Boys, How a Right-Wing Street Gang Ushered in a New Era of American Extremism. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Andy. Talk about what happened in court yesterday and the significance of these 17 and 15-year sentences. Though long, they are about half as long as what the prosecutors requested. And as you answer that question, talk about the enhanced charge of terrorism and what the judge did with that. Right. Uh, Well, you know, these are, as you said, two uh, lieutenants who have been with the gang for a a long time, um, pushing the same rhetoric that made January 6th happen. Um, Both of them sobbed in court. Um, saying they regret their actions that, you know, this was January 6th was a slip up of the mind. Uh, uh, but but we know uh, from evidence in, in both their cases and uh, throughout their violent history, you know, four days after the news networks called the election for Joe Biden, uh, Joe Biggs, the gang's top propagandist, I would say, uh, published a blog titled The Second Civil War is Closer Than You Might Think. Buy ammo, clean your guns. Things are going to get a lot worse before they get better. Um, these guys, alongside Donald Trump, immediately after Trump lost, saw January 6th as their last stand for Trump. Um, so, so they were there was an air through their sobs uh, right before their sentencing uh, of of you know they were claiming that this was a slip up during the day that they followed Donald Trump erroneously. But we know for a fact. Um, that these guys were ready and willing uh, to to bring violence to the situation for Trump, just as they always have. Now, 
the sentences that each of these uh, lieutenants got show um, that the Justice Department and now uh, the judge overseeing the case, Tim Kelly, um, see the Proud Boys as the uh, one of, if not the top uh, uh, organizers, planners and executors of the riots on January 6th. I mean, these are with the terrorism enhancement, very serious uh, uh, charges. Seditious conspiracy is a rare charge historically brought against terrorists working on American soil. Um, uh, this is this is very serious. Now, will the uh, the sentences have any sort of tamping down effect on our overall extremist crisis? I don't think so. Um, but certainly the 15 and 17 year sentences for two top lieutenants of the Proud Boys doesn't bode well for our last three defendants, especially the chairman Enrique Tario, who uh, the government argued successfully oversaw the entire thing from start to finish on January 6th. I want to go back to January 6, 2021. This is Proud Boy Joe Biggs in a selfie video outside the Capitol. So we just stormed the f-ing Capitol. Yeah, we took did. the place back. <laughs> that was so much fun. So much America. So much America. January 6th will be a day in infamy. So tell us more about who Proud Boy Joe Biggs is and also his relationship with InfoWars and Alex Jones, a correspondent. Um, tell us about him. Sure. He's a an army veteran. Uh, he was in the army for eight years, did tours of Iraq and in fact uh, got a, a head injury there. Um, he's also a former InfoWars correspondent and, and through that um, was able to consistently put the Proud Boys in front of a huge sweeping audience that Alex Jones enjoys. He was their top propagandist, like I said, you know, throughout um, um, their careers. He's putting Proud Boys, helping Alex, putting Proud Boys in front of Alex Jones to, to help him celebrate the violence that they were committing against the GOP's perceived enemies. And, you know, one of these defendants, Ethan Nordeen, went on Alex Jones's show uh, in 2018, after knocking a protester out cold, Alex Jones said it was one of the most beautiful American moments he'd ever seen. And so Joe Biggs was instrumental in helping the Proud Boys um, become a big part of the GOP conversation and ultimately become the architects of uh, the biggest last stand for Trump uh, ever. So um, Joe Biggs is their propagandist. Zachary Rail is the leader of the Philadelphia Proud Boys, former leader now, um, who marched with Biggs on January 6th in front of the pack uh, of, of rioters who marched toward the Capitol. And it was uh, in between the ellipse and the Capitol where Joe Biggs came upon a, a police barricade. He breached that barricade, allowing the other rioters to go through and giving this sort of a uh, tacit endorsement to storming the Capitol. It was a pivotal moment um, for this entire riot. And it's for that breach that Joe Biggs created uh, that they got the terrorism enhancement on their charges. Now, Judge Tim Kelly said, colloquially, I'm not going to liken what the Proud Boys did uh, to you know, plotting to blow up a government building. Um, however, it was the blowing up of the American process of the peaceful transfer of power um, that makes this terrorism enhancement 
uh, accurate. And it's a big reason why their sentences are are, are so substantial here. Um, and I wanted to yeah. um, ask you about this comment of Joe Biggs. November 10th, 2020, that's just after the news networks called the election for Joe Biden. Biggs posted a blog post on his website, the Biggs Report, in which he called for, well, directly for civil war, saying, buy ammo, clean your guns, get storable food and water. Um, He wrote in this now deleted post, be prepared. Things are about to get bad before they get better. But, you know, that was public. But it's not only about Biggs here. We're going from the boots to the suits. And this is the issue that was raised uh, by um, Relin Court, also raised by the lawyer, is they thought they were being patriots for the president of the United States who said that we're talking about a stolen election. So certainly Donald Trump knew about this. Talk about what these sentences mean for um, Donald Trump who has been accused, has been indicted over and over again. Right, absolutely. I mean, the the Proud Boys can argue all they want that it was an accident that they you know, were just responding to Trump. But that is their directive as a gang. Um, not only have they consistently uh, committed violence on behalf of Trump's words, on behalf of Tucker Carlson's words, the overall GOP grievance machine. Um, but they are close friends with Trump's top people. Enrique Tarrio uh, was in contact with Roger Stone, one of Trump's top confidants, on January 6th, leading up to January 6th. And after January 6th, Roger Stone admitted to me for the book that he'd been advising the Proud Boys politically and helping them become a more political machine uh, for years leading up to January 6th. These guys um, had an absolute line to Trump. I'm not trying to suggest that I have any evidence that they spoke or got word to Trump on the day. We don't know that yet, but certainly Trump knew that there was a street gang and a bunch of rioters out there waiting in the wings to to uh, uh, mobilize on his word. In fact, uh, uh, shortly after Trump posted a message on Twitter saying his followers, uh, you know, this this protest would be wild in Washington on January sixth. Joseph Biggs um, wrote to Enrique Tarrio, encouraging him to get quote radical and real men to answer that call to action. I mean, Andy, when it comes to Trump knowing, we already know that on January 6th, when he was told that men were armed um, coming to his rally, uh, Trump's response was to say, don't force people to go through metal detectors. Absolutely. And Michael Cohen said uh, prior to January 6th, uh, in an interview with CNN, he said, uh, Trump knows he has Proud Boys in the street um, and he's excited about it. January 6th, Cohen said at the time, is going to be really bad because Trump knows he has these very violent people on the street for him and he loves it. And and, and that's just how it's played out over and over again before January 6th. And, and let's not forget, the Proud Boys, despite their leaders being in jail, are still doing all of the same violence uh, on GOP's grievances that they were before. It, it continues today. Particularly going after drag shows, particularly going after um, uh, pro-choice uh, protesters and abortion clinics. Right, absolutely, and and you know people ask you know well the national 
Leaders are all behind bars. They've dissolved their national chapter. Doesn't this mean the end of the Proud Boys? And certainly it does not because they work locally. Uh, they, they are at abortion clinics. They are at school board meetings. They are, you know, mobilizing on words of other, you know, big GOP voices like Ron DeSantis across the country at rapid clip. And so the only thing that's really changed about the Proud Boys since these convictions and these sentences is that they're not amassing on a, a huge level for Trump like they used to, but nobody's doing that. And that may change during the election. Um, I, I think it's important to note that if the Proud Boys dissolved tomorrow or they changed their name, which I don't expect, it doesn't change the fact that we have an ingrained extremist crisis at the highest levels of government on the right. And, and, and that the Proud Boys have done what Judge Kelly called, you know, the breaking of the tradition of peaceful transfer, transfer of power. They have so normalized violence that you can expect to be scared at a polling place, be scared at an abortion clinic, um, be scared at, uh, you know, American political rallies because we have this extremist contingent. And that is the damage that the Proud Boys did and continue to do to this day. Andy Campbell, I want to thank you for being with us, senior writer at HuffPost. His book is We Are Proud Boys, How a Right-Wing Street Gang Ushered in a New Era of American Extremism. Coming up, we go to Minnesota, where water protectors on trial facing five years in prison for engaging in peaceful protest against the Enbridge Line 3 tar sands oil pipeline. Back in 30 seconds. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. We turn now to Minnesota, where a nonviolent water protector is facing up to five years in prison for taking part in an action against the Enbridge Line 3 tar sands oil pipeline. Two years ago, in August of 2021, Milen Villar attached herself to a 25-foot bamboo tower erected to block a Line 3 pumping station in Aiken County. Villard, who lives in Colorado, had come to Minnesota to take part in a wave of indigenous-led acts of civil disobedience to stop the pipeline. She was filmed during the action. I'm here for my daughter and my daughter's daughter and all their children and grandchildren. I'm here because there is a real climate crisis and nobody seems to care. I'm here because that's the only thing I can do right now. I have to show up and I have to defend this land and I have to defend the rights of the people who have been on this land forever. 
Between December 2020 and September 2021, police in Minnesota made more than a thousand arrests. Milan Villard is just the second water protector facing felony charges to go to trial. Her trial began this week. Milan is joining us along with Tara Hauska, an indigenous lawyer, activist, and founder of the Ginu Collective. She's Ojibwe from the Kochiching First Nation. Tara Hauska was also arrested in 2021 for participating in a nonviolent action against Line 3. Um, Milan Villard, um, talk about the trial this week. The prosecution has presented their case. Um, go back two years for us. And talk more about why you came to Minnesota and exactly what you did and hope to accomplish. Yes, thank you. I mean, it's uh, an honor to be here with Tara today. Um, two years ago, I um, heard the call from um, Indigenous women and Two Spirit um, people to come to Minnesota to fight Line Three, and was really moved by their plight. Um, it's it's been um, a long fight for them, and so my daughter decided to come here first, and then I followed her um, later to also participate in nonviolent protection. Um, on that day, on that particular day, August twenty sixth, we um, there was a, a bamboo and wire tower that was uh, erected, which I climbed to the top of and um, uh, locked in into with um, another um, water protector. And um, we were trying to stop the construction of the Swatara pumping station, which, by the way, just had um, um, an aquifer breach happening just a, exactly a month ago. Um, so we're, uh, we were trying to avoid just that. Um, and bridge has a really bad track record for oil spills um, going back to the 90s or 80s. And um, and so we were outraged that the permit had even been uh, accepted and delivered. And so going there was really fighting for the people who had been fighting for seven years alongside them in solidarity with them and uh, fighting for the rights to clean water, clean air, which the fossil fuel industry has destroyed, basically. So we're destroying our planet, we're destroying our way of life, we're destroying the water up here in Minnesota, where the headwaters of the Mississippi River are, where um, it's the land of a thousand lakes, um, and we're destroying those lakes. Um, and we went under 200 bodies of water, and we were up there to say no, basically no to destroying the land destroying the water, destroying the air, destroying the way of life of everybody. Milan, I'm wondering how you feel the trial is going and why you refuse to take a plea deal on the felony charge. Um, you're facing also a $10,000 fine. Right. Um, I could not sign the papers saying that I was guilty because... I am not the guilty party here. Enbridge is destroying, is violent. The, just destroying the land to put a pipeline that, that we know is going to leak is violence against the, the, the earth, the water, the people who live on this land and depend on that. Um, so 
yeah, I could not take the plea deal. I'm not guilty. And if the state wants to prove me guilty, then they have to do that, which so far has not happened. And yet I'm still here fighting. I'm still in court. I'm going to testify today. And and even Sheriff Gaida, who extracted us in the most careless manner, um, was has not been able to prove or has not said that I was doing anything wrong up there. I'm a nonviolent activist. I believe in nonviolence. Everything I do, that's my daily life is nonviolence. So I, you know, I was up there. I was not obstructing legal process, which is the charge I got. Um, I was just up there protesting an abomination. Um, and so, um, I would say the trial is, is a farce right now at this point. Um, my lawyer is at our hands with, with reminding the court and the prosecution about procedures, about the law, about legalese 101 that everybody should respect in court. And it's not happening. It's not happening. And there's so many reasons that my case should have been dismissed by now. Um, and I'm going to testify today. Well, you're very brave to come on. And, um, you know, we're talking amidst, well, after Lahaina was destroyed uh, as a result of climate change in Hawaii, um, after uh, the south of the United States, uh, particularly Florida and the Carolinas have been hit hard by by Hurricane Adalia. Tara Hauska, I wanted to bring you into this conversation um, as an indigenous lawyer and also a peaceful protester against Line 3. You joined us on Democracy Now! after you were released from jail in 2021. You posted photos on social media with bloodied welts on your arms after you were shot with rubber bullets during your peaceful action. Can you talk about the escalation of police violence at the time and um, how you feel these cases are now going? Since Standing Rock and the resistance against Dakota Access Pipeline, which you were also at and documented some of the police brutality that occurred there, the escalation of police both in the direct uh, confrontations with nonviolent protesters and also just the prosecutorial system against specifically environmental activists has grown exponentially worse. Um, you know, I, I know that there's been coverage on on your program and others um, about the Atlanta Cop City protests. Uh, you know, you just had on someone talking about how they had added on a felony terrorism enhancement that was up front with the with the protesters down at Cop City. 42 people charged with domestic terrorism. Um, I feel like the the body of Alec is around the entire state. All the state legislature is trying to push felony protest bills that happened in Minnesota too. They didn't pass it successfully here, but they've passed it other places. Um, the crackdown on environmental protest is nationwide. And it is, I think, uh, a system in which you're seeing everyone trying to push and see just what they can get away with. 
Um, there are several other line three cases still open next month. Three Anishinaabe women, elders, Winona LaDuke, Tanya Obed, Don Goodwin will go on trial together on gross misdemeanor critical infrastructure charges related to a January 2021 uh, protest. Um, if you can talk about uh, what this all means as the world becomes increasingly conscious of the climate catastrophe, um, and also the relationship between Enbridge security and uh, Minnesota police and authorities. We think about the words critical infrastructure. What is actually critical infrastructure to the survival of human beings and every other being on this earth? It's water. Right, that is the actual critical infrastructure. Designating an oil pipeline uh, for fossil fuels bound somewhere else, the active destruction of our own chance of survival, of my daughter's chance of survival of, at her daughter's daughter, it is just an abomination of where we're at as a species. Um, you mentioned all those you know, increasing signs of climate crisis that is occurring. Um, you know, talking about the uh, global boiling Right? We're not even saying global warming or global boiling. And species extinction is just so painful to watch. And then you, know, you have these attempts by human beings against other human beings who are trying to at least give nature a voice, at least try to do something different, um, actively pushing against and trying to suppress that voice. Um, where you see in here in Minnesota, instead of the company... Um, you know, behind the behind closed doors, paying off law enforcement to defend their pipeline and defend their project. It was an open agreement, overseen by the state of Minnesota, overseen by the Democratic government, government, overseen by Tim Walls and Peggy Flanagan here in Minnesota. You know, that still stands. They pay them over eight million dollars, closing in on nine million. The biggest accept 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 um, the biggest person that accepted the money, like or the the agency that accepted that money, was the Department of Natural Resources. That's the people who are tasked to actually defend the wetlands, which just got deregulated, right? Like all the nation's wetlands just got deregulated because the EPA no longer has oversight. That's what's happening. And that's the global picture um, that's happening, not just here, but around the world where land defenders are not just criminalized or killed for defending the earth. I want to end with Milan, who is speaking to us right before testifying in court. Are you afraid of the sentence you face if you were found guilty five years in prison? Or are you hopeful that perhaps you will go the route of the Montana youth, who, where a judge has ruled uh, on their behalf um, around uh, climate protests and climate activism and challenging the state for engaging in uh, destruction of the planet? I, I wouldn't say that I'm afraid. Um, I entered this um, fully um, aware of the risk I was taking and not really um, believing that the justice system in this court would be served, um, would be um, hearing me fully. Um, so I I am aware of what I'm risking uh, and I'm going um I'm going there fully aware of the risk, um, but I'm not scared. I know where I stand. I know what my purpose is here. I'm um, grateful for you to for hearing us uh, today. Um, what does your T-shirt say? My T-shirt says, defend the sacred. This is a T-shirt I was wearing 
um, on that day. Um, this is why I was there. The sacred is the earth, the nature, the water, um, the people who live on this um, on this land, and um, and all the animals and and um, earth sky. You know, just well, the Anishinaabeg people have been um, talking about and doing forever. Milan. Um, I want to thank you very much for being with us. Milen Villard, water protector on trial in Minnesota for taking part in action against the Enbridge Line 3 Tar Sands oil pipeline. She will testify today in court. She faces five years in prison if convicted. Tara Hauska, indigenous lawyer, activist, and founder of the Ginu Collective. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman as we continue to look at the climate emergency. The Guardian's reporting Hurricane Adalia might become the costliest climate disaster to hit the United States this year. The Category 3 left a trail of destruction from Florida to the Carolinas. Forecasting company AccuWeather is projecting the storm might cost $20 billion dollars. Last week, NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, revealed the United States had already suffered at least 15 weather disasters that caused $1 billion or more in damage. While the costs of the climate crisis continue to escalate, climate justice groups are warning the government must do far more to combat the climate emergency. We're joined now by Rihanna Gunwright. She was one of the architects of the Green New Deal. She's just written a new piece for Hammer and Hope headlined, Our Green Transition May Leave Black People Behind. She writes, I'm an architect of the Green New Deal. I'm worried the racism in the biggest climate law endangers our ability to get off fossil fuels. Rihanna Gunwright, take it from there. Explain why you're so deeply concerned. So I am really deeply concerned because the Inflation Reduction Act, the biggest climate law basically in U.S. history, is setting up the framework for the clean energy transition to come. And so far, there are many provisions in the bill that just structurally leave out black people um, or just don't address the needs, particularly of black frontline communities. And at the same time, the debates and the decisions about how to implement the IRA in those, um, in those cases too, we're seeing a trend of the desires of black frontline communities, again, in particular, being set aside, um, in some cases being dismissed. And it's very troubling because this is what's going to sort of guide the clean energy transition for the foreseeable future. And as we've seen before in U.S. history, there's often uh, a sense that we can get to justice later. But when does later come? And so all of that, that amalgamation of factors is what has got me worried Rihanna, you write the racist compromises and the marginalization of black people and their demands that facilitated the bill's passage have seeped into the climate movement. Talk very specifically about what you mean. So what I mean is that in order to pass the IRA, 
uh, Senate Democrats leadership in particular had to broker a deal with Senator Manchin. And part of that deal included compromises, particularly around um, allowing opening up lease sales in the Gulf, um, as well as compromises that allowed the building of the Mountain Valley pipeline to move forward. And it's worth noting that both of those things have been blocked by court challenges from environmental groups and climate justice activists. So both of those things were moved forward despite those challenges by the compromises in order to let the IRA pass. And so when I say that it seeped in, it's what I mean is that in doing that, Right, you created um, some momentum where there was a sense that some amount of of racism was a necessary cost for the IRA to move forward because both with the Gulf sales, uh, the lease sales in the Gulf, and with the Mountain Valley pipeline, those things disproportionately impact Black frontline communities. And so when I say that it seeped in, I have noticed in debates, there's been a real sidelining. I think you see it in particular in the conversation about permitting reform. There's been a real sidelining of black, brown and indigenous voices and their calls for a just transition in the debates about how to effectively implement the IRA. And I mean, when I talk about permitting reform, I mean, there is a big push in particular to weaken NEPA, despite the fact that NEPA, uh, the National Environmental Permitting Act, um, is one of the main tools that frontline communities have to protect themselves and push back against polluting infrastructure. And the real troubling part about that being forefronted in the permitting reform debate is that the IRA also takes a real all of the above strategy when it comes to the energy transition. So that means that it's uh, basically investing in tons of technologies across the board. A lot of that's in renewable energy, a lot of that's in technologies that a lot of people argue can help prop up fossil fuels, even as they could help decarbonize at the same time. And so what that means is that you're going to, along with the concessions, still see a build out of fossil fuel infrastructure as well as well as renewable energy infrastructure. And so gutting NEPA actually puts frontline communities in a really vulnerable position, even if it is to speed up renewable energy transitions, where at the same time, you have a lot of climate justice activists also calling for permitting reform, but in a way that protects democratic participation that is about right increasing the amount of planning that is about making community consultations upfront more powerful, less antagonistic, trying to sort of build a a procedure for infrastructure decisions that helps build trust. But those, um, those recommendations are largely being sort of pushed aside, talked about as insufficient, because I think like I said, in part because of the concessions that happened with the IRA to pass it, there is an increasing um, sort of narrative about the tension between 
justice and urgency that's presenting a false choice that says essentially we have to do whatever we have. We have to increase um, the deployment of renewable energy by any means necessary, even if that means reducing democratic participation, because there's just, like I said, a narrative that says we don't have enough time to make sure that the transition is just if that if there is any chance um, that that doesn't come in the form of just like regulatory streamlining across the board. Brianna, uh, you call for the expansion of Justice 40, a Biden administration initiative that aims to direct 40 percent of the benefits of federal clean energy and other climate investments to disadvantaged communities. How can this be expanded? And how can the Biden administration nationally subsidize divestment from fossil fuels? We'll end with those two questions. Can you repeat that last question? How can uh, the Biden administration nationally subsidize divestment from fossil fuels equitably? Oh, okay, totally. So on the first part, so Justice 40 is the administration's pretty much their signature environmental justice initiative, which says that 40% of the benefits of climate and energy investments need to go to disadvantaged communities. I call for the expansion of Justice 40 because Justice 40 was actually initiated before the IRA. Um, And so it is unclear right now whether Justice 40 will apply to IRA spending across the board. What we have seen with Justice 40 is there is a tendency to mostly include programs that are sort of legacy environmental justice programs like weatherization, energy efficiency, or just programs that are sort of siloed in the environmental justice camp and not necessarily spending related to the energy transition more broadly. So I'm calling for Justice 40 to cover all of that, right? Because that's Rihanna, how we, we just make have sure less than a minute to that go. So the wanna... transition does, in fact, benefit everyone if all of the spending is included. At the same time, I do note that, like, funding for projects and technologies that frontline communities have repeatedly opposed, say, like carbon capture and storage, that shouldn't be included in Justice 40. At the end of the day, it's just disrespectful if that is not actually the vision that frontline communities are um have for their role in the green transition. They want to get polluting infrastructure out entirely. So we should be investing in renewable energy projects that they're asking for, whether that's community solar, microgrids, public, um, uh, publicly owned and provided renewable energy, excuse me, microgrids. Those are the sort of things that over and over frontline communities and the groups that have rep- that represent them say that they want to get out of a green transition. Rihanna, we're going to have to leave the administration. The, how to we have, we have less than 30 seconds, from, Rihanna, just less than 30 seconds on that last point sure. of the Biden administration. Yep. For a fossil fuel um, divest. Well, one is there have to be no new leases um, for fossil fuel projects. Um, the second is that we really need to form at the very least a commission um, to discuss how do we have a responsible wind down of fossil fuels. Right now we're leaving 
the divestment and wind down of the fossil fuel industry up to the industry entirely. And what we're seeing over and over is they're not investing in that. And it's very increasingly unlikely that they, in fact, will be investing in low carbon energy in a real way. And so without really a publicly planned transition, we're going to end up with a transition off of fossil fuels. That's not just inequitable for black people, but that harms workers, residents, everyone, consumers, and especially folks from regions where fossil fuels are a big part of that local economy. Rihanna Gunwright, I want to thank you so much for being with us. One of the architects of the Green New Deal. We'll link to your piece in Hammer and Hope. Our green transition may leave black people behind. Coming up, we look at why thousands of Afghan evacuees are being arbitrarily detained overseas, waiting to come into the United States. Back in 20 seconds. by Toon Yards from the Labor Day Classics. Sorry to bother you. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman. Thousands of Afghan evacuees seeking to come to the United States remain arbitrarily detained in other countries two years after the Taliban took control of Afghanistan. Many of the Afghans are living in camps in the United Arab Emirates, Qatar, Kosovo, that are largely coordinated, facilitated, or under the control of the U.S. government. The Center for Constitutional Rights and the group Muslim Advocates recently sued the Pentagon, the State Department, and the Department of Homeland Security, seeking governmental records about the relocation and detention of Afghan evacuees. We're joined now by Sarah Dust. She's an attorney and Bertha Justice Fellow at the Center for Constitutional Rights. Can you lay out, Sadaf, um, the extent of the problem, how many people are being held and what they need to come into the United States? Thank you so much for raising awareness and covering this issue. Um, just as you had mentioned, uh, thousands of Afghan civilians are being arbitrarily detained at these sites. And this comes after um, 20 decades of occupation and invasion and war at the hands of the US government. So we're still seeing that two years after the US declared the end of its war in Afghanistan, um, Afghan civilians still continue to be suffering human rights and humanitarian violations uh, at the hands of the US government. Um, the numbers, because of the very limited reporting that is out there, is uncertain, but it what limited reporting is out there indicates that it's over 3,000 people, up to 5,000 or more. Um, and these sites, just as you have mentioned, the ones that, that are more reported about are in the UAE, Qatar, and Kosovo, but other sites in Albania, Germany, possibly others exist as well. Uh, and what this lawsuit hopes to achieve is to provide more information to humanitarian, human rights, and civil society organizations who really are hoping to hold the government accountable and 
meaningfully engage to intervene and, and prevent the continued detention of these Afghan civilians. And Sadaf, tell us who these people are and what they're, I mean, the site in Kosovo, for example, has been nicknamed Little Guantanamo. What happens if they leave the camps and what was their relationship with the United States as the U.S. occupied Afghanistan? Why did they flee Afghanistan? Yeah, and um, and in Kosovo, it is nicknamed Little Guantanamo because of the horrifying conditions. Uh, last year, there was a protest staged by those Afghans detained at at these uh, sites, asking for better conditions, asking um, any government that has a hand in facilitating or coordinating uh, these sites for better conditions. Um, these individuals include human rights activists who had to flee Afghanistan because the Taliban is now um, and searching for those individuals. Uh, this includes journalists, some who worked with news organizations based out here in the US or elsewhere. Um, it includes women rights activists uh, and just lawyers, prosecutors, judges, as well as your everyday Afghan civilians who had to flee because of the compounding humanitarian and human rights crisis in Afghanistan. I wanted to turn to a clip that we have uh, to play of a person uh, who is waiting. Um, this is a clip uh, that we got uh, that you can introduce it of a young person um, who is waiting to come into the country, Sadaf. Let's turn to the clip. Half the passengers fell into the water and were swallowed up by the sea. Those who were left in the boat tried to stay alive with the help of their tubes. About two hours later, the French police arrived and threw tubes at us to save us. Those boys who were in the boat also took along six bodies of those who had died in the boat. The rest of the Afghans were lost. Half of the survivors were taken up by the UK police. I never believed I would survive. I thought I was dying and was ready to die. I asked God to forgive my sins. I also remembered my mother and father. I kept swimming for the sake of my parents and my brothers and sisters because we have left home and are going through all of this suffering for their sake. I was fast losing the strength to swim, but I kept trying very hard to keep afloat. That was a clip of a, a young man um, who was refu uh, who was uh, saved, a 22-year-old Idris. Last month, a boat full of mostly Afghan refugees capsized in the English Channel as it tried to reach Britain from France. Six of the people died. Um, talk about the lengths people are going to. The lengths are extreme, and, and what we're hearing from Afghan civilians is that they don't want to leave their home. No person wants to leave um, their family and their loved ones and where they built a life, uh, a place that they're familiar with, but they have no other option because of the United States' uh, hasty withdrawal and, and the ground that it laid for what we're seeing now today. Um, there are other reports at Afghans here in, in the U.S. southern border that are um, facing very similar um, con conditions where they're not being welcomed. They are traveling um, multiple continents, 12 to 14 countries, um, just to come here in the U.S. and, and be locked up in um, discriminatory policies that are really targeting 
um, Muslims and, and Afghans. Well, I want to thank you so much, Sadaf Dus, for joining us. Afghan American attorney, Bertha Justice Fellow at the Center for Constitutional Rights. And we can, will continue to follow this case. To see our podcast, video and audio podcasts, and sign up for our news website, you can go to democracynow.org, our newsletter. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you, everybody, for listening here. And we're going to continue because of the time. This is called spiritual fitness. The yeah, daily practices. What, Rama? Going yes, I'm going to read here. Spiritual fitness. The daily practices of a Norse forest witch with Imelda Almquist. Spiritual fitness. Uh, this is episode 12. Imelda Almquist. Almquist is an international teacher of sacred art and cedar old Norse traditions. That's S-E-I-D-R. Oh, maybe that's something else. S-E-I-O with some kind of an accent over it. Mm. R. Slash old Norse traditions, the ancestral wisdom teachings of Northern Europe. So far, she has within four nonfiction books and three picture books for children. Natural Born Shamans, a spiritual toolkit for life. Using shamanism creatively with young people of all ages. In 2016, Sacred Art, a hollow bone for spirit where art meets shamanism in 2019. Medicine of the Imagination, Dwelling in Possibility, an impassioned plea for fearless imagination in 2020, and the North Sea Water in My Veins, the Pre-Christian Spirituality of the Low Countries, was published in June 2022. Melda is currently working on a handbook for rune magicians. The Green Bear is a series of magical picture books for children aged three to eight years. I had such access to some of these kind of <coughs> wonderful things, and my kids got adults. <laughs> Set in Scandinavia, Imelda has presented her work on both the Shift Network and Sounds True. She appears in a TV program, Tilted Ice Age Shaman. Titled Ice Age Shaman, made for the Smithsonian Museum in the series Mystic Britain, talking about Mesolithic Arctic Deer Shamanism. Oh, Rala, you mm. ought to have a connection with this lady. Mm. Imelden has a forest school in Sweden. Her online school is called Pregnant Hag Teachings. Mm. <laughs> 2024, Imelden mm. will teach a sacred art. Retreat in Greenland. Here is Imelda's free gift to you, a free workshop about post-pandemic support for young people. And that the link is there. All right, let's just get into it. The time is of the now. So here we go. Mm. This is uh, 48 minutes. You better scoot, Rama. And... Um 
The reason I call myself a witch is because it is the word that my ancestors used. It's a Northern European word and, you know, many of, not my personal, but our common ancestors, you know, people of European descent, uh, they were burned for their beliefs. They weren't allowed to practice their herbalism. They were demonized and ostracized and, and quite a few of them were executed. So we live in times where it's actually safe to bring those teachings again and to embody that and to have that lifestyle and to hopefully be healers of this year. So by using that word, uh, I honor my ancestors and I also demonstrate my loyalty to them. And the reason I call myself a forest witch is because of so much of what I do here in Sweden. It comes from the forest. The forest is my teacher. The beings in the forest are my teachers. Not a day passes without really learning something really significant. Welcome to the Sacred Planet podcast. I am your host, Jocelyn Starfeather. We are living at the end of a massive 26,000 year cycle. This is a cycle that can be defined not astrologically, but astronomically by the movement of the North Star in the sky. Every 26,000 years, we come back to the original North Star. The times that we are living in now are when one of these 26,000 year cycles is ending and a new one is beginning. And so this is why this time when we are alive right now has been foretold in the ancient prophecies of many indigenous and ancient peoples all around the world from almost every continent. This is why the world feels so chaotic, so uncertain and so unstable right now because we are truly shifting from one age, one massive 26,000 year age into a new one. This is also why we are seeing so many changes in our own lives, so many changes in the world. It's because the systems and structures, the patterns and beliefs that we have been carrying for an extremely long time are collapsing. They are breaking down. And this is terrifying and also very exciting because those of us who are alive at this time, we get to choose what we will build next. We get to choose who we want to become in this new era. So it's really important to know during these times that these are actually not only ending times. This is not meant to be an apocalypse. This is actually meant to be the closing of a door to the old ways of being and the opening of a door to the new ways, to the radical new world that we are here to build together. We are here at this time, at this momentous time to choose what will come next. And so let us dream into a world that our children and grandchildren and the next seven generations will be delighted to inherit from us. And let's begin creating it one by one from within ourselves. That is where all change must begin, is from within every individual, and then it is rippled out to the world in miraculous and beautiful ways. Here in the Sacred Planet podcast, we will be talking about spiritual awakening. 
we'll be talking about the massive changes that are happening in our world. And we'll be talking most importantly about how you can support yourself, how you can feel most healed and healthy and whole and inspired and uplifted and ready to build this new world together, ready to choose who you wish to become next as all of the old falls away and we are left with a blank slate to create anything that we wish, anything that we dream into the future. Welcome to the Sacred Planet Podcast. I can't wait to share the incredible speakers and topics that we'll be sharing here on the podcast. And I hope that it will be a tremendous inspiration to you in your own life. I am your host of the podcast. My name is Jocelyn Starfeather. I am the founder of Sacred Planet. Sacred Planet is a global community of people who are awakening to their true power and magic within and co-creating together and uplifting and inspiring one another as we build this radical new world together. I can't wait to share more with you. I'll see you soon in our next podcast episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Sacred Planet podcast. I am delighted to be here today with Imelda Almquist. Welcome, Imelda. Thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's good to speak again. Yeah, wonderful to talk to you again. It's been it's been years since we last talked, so I'm really excited to dive into these topics and your beautiful work that you're doing. So let me share a little bit more about you with our audience here. Imelda Almquist is an international teacher of sacred art and Old Norse traditions, the ancestral wisdom teachings of Northern Europe. So far, she has written four nonfiction books and three picture books for children. And I know I have just been so um, really, my mind was opened when I read your book, Natural Born Shamans, A Spiritual Toolkit for Life. Um, about using shamanism creatively with young people. It's just Mm. incredible. I highly recommend that for everybody and especially parents and grandparents. (laughs) Um, And Imelda is currently working on a handbook for rune magicians. The Green Bear is a series of magical picture books for children aged three to eight years set in Scandinavia. Imelda has presented her work on both the Shift Network and Sounds True. She appears in a TV program titled Ice Age Shaman, made for the Smithsonian Museum. In the series, Mystic Britain, talking about Mesolithic Arctic deer shamanism. And she has a forest school in Sweden. Her online school is called Pregnant Hag Teachings. And in 2024, Imelda will teach a a sacred art retreat in Greenland. That sounds really amazing. So mm-hmm. thank you, Imelda, for all of this beautiful work that you're doing. And it just all sounds so fun and creative. Yeah. So our our topic for today is called Spiritual Fitness, the Daily Practices of a Norse Forest Witch. So could you begin by sharing with us why do you call yourself a Norse Forest Witch? And what does that mean? Yeah. Well, I'm talking to you from the forest. I'm in my house, which is also my school here in the forest in Sweden by the Baltic Sea. And um, I'm enjoying a month of solitude. So I haven't seen another human being for about 10 days now, which is quite an amazing experience. And um, the reason I call myself a witch is because it is the word that my ancestors used. It's a Northern European word. And, you know, many of, not my personal, but, our common ancestors, you know, all back 
people of European descent, uh, they were burned for their beliefs. They weren't allowed to practice their Hermanism. They were demonized and ostracized, and, and quite a few of them were executed. So we live in times where it's actually safe to bring those teachings again and to embody that and to have that lifestyle and to openly be healers and practitioners. So by using that word, uh, I honor my ancestors and I also demonstrate my loyalty to them. And the reason I call myself a forest witch is because of so much of what I do here in Sweden. It comes from the forest. The forest is my teacher. The beings in the forest are my teachers. Not a day passes without me learning something really significant. Not paying really close attention as the human voices have dropped away. During this time of solitude, I'm listening more closely to the, the, the voice of the winds and the birds and, you know, like everything that goes on around me. So um, this is my great teacher, and I want to honor, want to honor that. Yes, that's so beautiful, so beautiful. And the solitude, um, I can only imagine how you know deeply you go into the the liminal realms, you know, and, and having that kind of solitude for an extended period of time. So that's really beautiful. I I would love to go first here um, to this idea of our young people and. Mm-hmm what our young people are going through in the world right now and how connecting with shamanism or shamanic practices or indigenous wisdom um, can be supportive for them. I wonder if you, if you would mind saying a few words about that. As we get started. I'm always happy to talk about that subject as a model of three sons. And yeah, I observed that our young people live in a world that was already changed completely when I myself grew up. So my husband and I have agreed that we can never say to our children anymore when I was your age, because these comparisons fail completely. So we've actually agreed to never say that to them again. Um, but also the world has been changed by a pandemic, uh, by the internet. Uh, now we have AI arriving on the scene. And also there's a war playing out in Europe. And you know, Russia is just across the water here. I'm actually very close to Russia. It's just across the sea. So... Um, So there's that awareness as well. And I think that young people need a spiritual toolkit more than ever. And my free gift for this um, interview is actually a free workshop people can do in my um, online school. And I recorded that about um, a year ago. And it gives a lot of like practical pointers where young people are at and where we can meet them. And also how we can talk to them about our own spiritual belief system while giving them the space to develop their own um, belief system. But, you know, in my kind of work, it's always putting spirit at the very heart of things. And in a way, I think that's the greatest gift you can give to children. If they can form that connection, you know, whatever expression that takes for them and however much it changes later on in life, if they have that connection to spirit, they always have that dialogue and they have that guidance. And I also think that more needs to be done for young people because the rates for men- diagnosed mental health and mental illness um, are extreme at the moment. We also live in a world that puts a lot of pressure on young people, where, you know, young people now compare themselves with, you know, unrealistically beautiful people on Instagram who use filter filters and have their pictures photoshopped. So, you know, a lot of people now feel that they fall short of the perfect lifestyle or the perfect looks or all of those things. So there's a lot going on there. And um, 
I don't think it's possible for all young people who need it to receive, uh, you know, professional mental health support. I think, unfortunately, that's only going to be for the most severe cases where medical referrals are made. And even then, the waiting times are very long, at least in Europe they are. I don't know what's like in other parts of the world. So, yeah, and, and I really thought about this a lot, observing young people and working with them. And I think the best idea I can come up with is that we create mentoring systems where, um, you know, People from any walk of life, and they don't need to be parents, but people who have the ability to reach out to a child, do that for just one young person. You can't change the world, but you could maybe just change the life of one young person a little bit. And that could take many different ways. It could be being a a good listener, you know, non-judgmental, unconditional listening. Some children, you know, sometimes need a good meal or a bed for the night or a safe place where they can go when things get difficult at home. Or, you know, a person they can talk to about what's happening in school, maybe like bullying or other pressures. Now there are a lot of people with gender dysphoria at the moment whom I believe also need others that they can speak to. So it is my belief those people have something to offer and who have the space, uh, you know, would find a way of mentoring a young person, you know, ideally close by, maybe something to connect with them online, but ideally, if at all possible in person, then research by psychologists shows that even children who have a lot of adverse experiences in life and who move through a lot of trauma, if there's just one responsible adult in their life, you know, neighbor, uncle, coach, teacher, you know, whatever the person is, whatever role they're in, but if there's the support and the stability of that one person they can connect with, it makes a significant change to the outcome of the rest of their lives. They end up doing much better because they have that support and also they can internalize that. They know what that looks like, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yes, that makes so much sense. That makes so much sense. And there are so many young people that for whatever reason can't turn to their parents or don't have their parents available to them, right? And also it helps for young people to have someone other than their parents, even if they do have a good relationship. Mm with their parents they might need mm. something else to turn to for some of the things that come up in life or some of the things they're dealing with so this is such a beautiful powerful idea thank you for sharing that yeah i do think um my i have daughters who are nine and twelve now mm. and i do see um some hope in the way that so many of the the movies and the new just concepts that are very widespread and familiar to kids right now involve, you know, things like spirit animals and connecting with our ancestors and, you know, and understanding that we have family out in the stars, you know, that the, the you know, these aspects of the earth are alive, not just for us to, you know, uh, appropriate and appropriate and make use of. So, I really do think there's a shifting of consciousness happening among the young people as well. Mm-hmm. It's, of course, it's happening at all levels of our collective human society. Um, but, you know, that that gives me a lot of hope. I know my girls have found it very easy to, you know, relate to the idea of spirit animals and these mm-hmm. things and, and to see and, and their friends do, too. It's not just my kids because I introduced them to that. You know, it's they can talk about these things with their friends and it's pretty normal. Um, and it may not be true for all kids everywhere, but I think it's growing. I think that's really becoming more available. So, yeah. so that's positive. Yeah. 
and it's become more cool as well. My own sons uh-huh. would sometimes bring friends home and say, oh, is it okay for them to just talk to you about shamanism for a bit? Or can they just like ask me some questions? And of course, I always say yes, because that's part of my, you know, that's something I can do in the world. And like you, I observe that though. I probably still think it's more available to children who have a kind of, you know, stable and good upbringing to start with, and maybe less available to those who really struggle. But even so, it's fantastic to see that it's becoming like cool and accepted, and you can talk about it in public. And that's a wonderful thing. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So, looking at another stage of life now, I know that you have um, spoken about the wisdom years as aging gracefully and eldering playfully. So, can you talk a little bit more about that? Of course. Yeah, that's like my time of life. I am 56 now, and I observed that we live in a society that is in total death denial. So, death is like sanitized and kept away from view. And also, we're obsessed with youth and looking young and, you know, like preserving youth at all costs, you know, almost to a silly and, you know, inappropriate extent. And it's not only what we do for ourselves, but it goes back to the young people as well. Like, what example do we set for young people if we sort of embody those obsessions in our life? So I feel very strongly that to grow older is a privilege. And I hope to be on the planet for more years, you know, even more decades, hopefully. And I think rather than putting a lot of energy into sort of, you know, trying to make a younger impression, I think why don't I accept the privilege that I am, the age I am, and uh, step deeper into that role we just discussed of like mentoring and being there for others, but also, you know, trying to live by spiritual values that are realistic and that hopefully models some kind of spiritual compass in life. You know, that's the way I try to parent my own children. Also, the way I try to be, as I said, when, you know, my children bring young people home or when I'm in situations where I interact with young people to sort of, you know, show that um, there is a different way of doing this. I think an enormous part of that is also, and that's a, you know, a key thing in shamanism, but that is to make death our friend or our ally. So to not live in fear of death, but to allow the fact they're going to die one day to absolutely inform every moment we have on the planet. And if you really do that, and I do it as a daily practice, to think, well, you know, visit that moment of my death briefly, then I come back with huge gratitude that I'm healthy and around today. And then I look at the things that bother me or that are on my to-do list, and I think, well, you know, like what is urgent and what is important? You know, do I do I keep my priorities straight? And, you know, every once in a while, I rethink that completely. I revision that completely. And I realize, like, things I need to release from my life so I have more time and energy for what really matters. And these are some of the gifts of, you know, working actively with death and trying. And I'm still young for it. I think you know, I can't really do it until I'm in my 60s. I'm an aspiring elder, but very much hope to be an elder one day, you know, embodying those kinds of values in the world. Yes. Yes, I, I love it when I, you know, see people celebrating a birthday in their 50s or 60s or 70s or beyond, you know, and saying, oh, I'm so grateful that, I, that I'm, you know, that I'm alive. I'm so grateful to have, you know, accumulated these years. And um, it's, it's such a gift, you know, it's such a gift. And our, certainly our ancient, um, you know, ancestors and previous ancient generations appreciated the, the elderhood and, you know, knew that we need to turn to our elders. We need to have that wisdom and that, you know, it's like, like libraries of wisdom that are, that can be mm. Mm. 
um, in the the mind and the consciousness of the elders in the community. And I just think this is something we we need to bring back. We need to remember. We need to value and honor once again. So yes, yeah, and also modeling that not all of life needs to be lived from an egoic state. Human ego is important because it's organized in principle. So. We need to get our car washed, or we need to get from A to B. I mean, we absolutely need to have our ego in here. As some of have students who say, I'm going to spend the rest of my life in like non egoic unity consciousness, but that'd be very impractical because you wouldn't like hold down the, you know, the other parts of your life. But I think to model for young people to give them that tool of the spirit led life and to sort of teach them that there are these some very mildly altered states of consciousness where you really feel that spirit works through you and spirit spirit uh, you know flows through you, it can inform what you do. And also that, that does take you back to a state of unity consciousness with the divine. And also that quickly takes us out of thinking that, you know, that little me is the most important person on the planet. But, you know, that's like not the case. And if you can so if you can live in that way, then immediately your priorities start shifting. And I'm just a bit concerned if I look at young people, that you know, again, psychologists run these polls and ask young people what they want to be when they grow up. And you know, a shocking number of them are that they want to be Instagram influencers. And it's like, well, you know, that's all very well. You know, we need to have some of those, but you know, I think something has come uh, of kilter in our culture if that is what most young people aspire to. So I think a dose of spirit-led work will counterbalance that quite nicely. Right. Yes, that's a bit shocking. I hadn't heard that. Yeah. <laughs> but I can I can see it, yes. Well, could you share with us about a practice that you have that you call waking the skulls? Yeah, waking and walking both because I collect skulls. I was in Shetland recently and, you know, brought home a whole like a suitcase full of skulls or leaving clothing and shoes behind so I could bring the skulls down. And also here at my forest house, you know, I have a deer skull, I have a moose skull, seal skull, skulls from other animals as well. And, uh, it is a spiritual belief that many indigenous peoples have or have as well, that when an animal dies, I mean, the soul of the animal would fly free, but that the skull still holds a kind of essence or a kind of wisdom that we can tap into. I guess that's why I like skulls so much. So I have all of these skulls and I arrange them on altars and I talk to them and, you know, so sometimes make offerings, not to the skulls themselves, but to the larger sort of great cosmic powers that they represent. And one of the things I do is that I take them on walks in the forest. I can't take them all at the same time. Like one of them is like a you know, bear skull as well. I was gifted a bear skull once, which is wonderful. So I couldn't like hold them all at the same time because some of them are really big. But, you know, every once in a while I select a few, however many I can carry. And I take them on the walk in the forest. And it's also a gift back to the animal that gave me the skull. That sort of gets to experience the place where they came from and that I get to be out in the fresh air. You know, and I do ceremony with them and I speak prayers or, you know, I'll play instruments. Sometimes I'll bring a musical instrument as well. It depends on how many things I can carry. But like, for instance, you know, I've been playing my swan bone flute a lot. So I'll bring skulls and play swan bone flute. And it's like, you know, giving something back and not connecting them back to the forest and the universal power. And then I bring them home again. And a lot of people think that's a very sort of strange practice. But when I talk about people think oh that is quite nice i could imagine myself doing that so that's one of my not daily but that's one of my regular 
Oh, how fascinating. Yes. I for for some reason as you were sharing about that, I was just seeing the cave paintings, you know, the Chafot and Lasso mm-hmm. cave paintings and just feeling that honoring as you're working with the skull, honoring the animal, you know, and those cave paintings, they feel so honoring of those of the animal. Mm-hmm. Um so that's really interesting. I'm gonna ponder that. <laughs> that's really beautiful. Now you you work with runes as well, and I understand you're working on a, a rune handbook for magicians. Is that right? Well, it's two handbooks actually, because it became so much material. I had to chop it into two books, and I was working on that today, I'm trying to get it to the final editing stage. I hope it's be there by Christmas, really. So I have so much teaching to and a lot of travel. <laughs> but yeah, the runes are very much you know, as a you know a Nordic or a Norse. Northern tradition practitioner, someone who teaches Seder. Um, you know, at the very core of what I do. And here in Sweden, I myself have painted rune stones, and not the, the rune stones that are like tomb or memorial stones, but I found quite big like rocks in the forest and painted the runes on them and I've laid them out in the form of a circle. So they're like in all directions as well. And every morning I step outside my front door. And I charm the runes. And as I charm the runes, I feel these homemade runes. That, like, they ping back at me. They check in with me. And then also by chanting the runes, because one rune teaching is that by teaching all the runes, that's the runes of the elder Fufar, mostly. So as a Dutch person, I also work with the Frisian runes. But now talking about um, the runes of the elder Fufar. Um, there is a belief that if you chant all the runes, you're kind of calling something back to be fine. Perfection because you're pulling in all of these, you know, cold powers, as it were. So, after I've chanted the rooms, then you know, I feel that the space around me is sacred space or so close my arms, and that then becomes my prayer bowl. So, the next thing I do is, you know, I speak all my prayers for people on my prayer list, or you know, people in my family who need some support, or you know, people who have my contact with me, even on social media or email, or so and so in prayer. So, that all goes. Now inside that circle of rooms, and I hold them all in prayers, and then I speak a few more like old Norse prayers, and then I start my day. Beautiful, beautiful. Uh, what do you think it is that um, that draws us to the runes? I, I, you know, they they feel so important as a part of our our history and our lineage. Um, but yeah, what do you think is is just extra powerful about the runes? Well, I think because they are far more than letters. I mean, in the Viking era, they were absolutely used as letters. Um, so that is like their primary um, purpose. But they were also used in magical workings. And I think the thing with the runes is also that, uh, it, you know, all the centuries, so there was also a kind of dark age during which ones where they almost fell out of use, not completely, they were still used in the countryside, but they, you know, it became a very known thing to use them. But still, all in all, many centuries of people working with the rooms that like accumulates into an energetic field that you tap into. So I'm almost aware that when I do my personal work with the rooms, and also that work needs to be reinvented the whole time. Because we live in different times from the Vikings. The Vikings didn't have to deal with the internet or, you know, artificial intelligence, but they had a lot of other challenges that we don't face anymore. So there's always a process of evolving and arriving at a new way of working. But 
uh, also the awareness that by working with the rooms, I tap into a larger field, a larger body of knowledge that all of these people who came before me, my room magician ancestors, have contributed to. And that, you know, if I do that in a, you know, in a place of deep honoring and respect, some of these insights start, filter, start filtering through. So then it's not just the runes anymore, only in, only, there's no only, but in the sense of that, you know, either uh, wooden discs or pebbles that have symbols on them. But for me, it also comes many, many centuries back. And for my book, I've even been looking if the links can be uh, linked to an, an earlier time, like say the Bronze Age period in Scandinavia, or so the kind of symbols that people painted in caves. And here we have a lot of petroglyphs in Scandinavia, also here on the doorstep. So I'm also quite intrigued by the, you know, we have no proof, but there are quite strong resemblances between some of the symbols we find in rock art, in petroglyphs in Scandinavia, and then these rooms. So that's the thing I've been exploring for my book. And so for me, when I work with the rooms, and also all the room readings I've done before, all the people I've worked with, all the room magician students have shared their own insights. It's like this huge body of work. And all of that activates and comes to life when I myself work with the rooms. Yes, amazing, amazing. I, I um, you know, that it's it's somewhat like the the Egyptian hieroglyphs that hold so many levels of meaning. You know, yes, mm-hmm. they as writing, and they could write, you know, whatever texts they needed to. But there are so many more layers and so many more connections and codes in there. So mm-hmm. feels similar. Yeah, it's really beautiful. Yeah, I'm curious um, about the sacred sites of the ancient Norse people. You know, we hear a lot about um, Stonehenge and we hear a lot about Egypt and, you know, Greece and these kinds of things. But what are the sacred sites of the far north? Oh, there are many because here in Sweden, the land is so littered with standing stones and rune stones and well, not so much stone circles. The, here in Scandinavia, the standing stones were erected in a ship shape, and that's called the shepsetning in Swedish. So it means the stone standing in a ship formation, and that's related to beliefs they have about the afterlife. Because some people are only really prominent, like warriors or chieftains, were buried in ships, where they would do like dig down, make a huge grave, and a whole wooden ship would go down. The people with all the grave goods as well. And so archaeologists have dug it up and we've learned a lot from that. So that's like one thing that they have these so-called Shepsetninger, these uh, ship formation stones. Uh, an incredible amount of petroglyphs. You know, the bulk of them here in Sweden are on the west coast in Wiklika and Tanenshede, so just south of like where the border with uh, Norway is. But we are on the east coast facing the Baltic Sea and we have petroglyphs here on the east coast as well, a considerable number of them. So we have the, you know, the standing stones and we have the petroglyphs. We have grave mounds that belong to ancient uh, kings and chieftains. And the nearest one near my forest school here is called Ipsakula, which is an, uh, an old sort of mound. And, you know, I sit out there with my students. So we sit out for a night or part of a night like on the grave mounds. And, you know, it's all very, very beautiful unless it rains. But that's an established Scandinavian way of communicating with ancestors. If you go sit on a grave mound, uh, you know, I said often at night and in solitude. And the idea then is that your sort of ancestors will come and talk to you. And there are like many other 
Scandinavia has so many places, you know, like so many what we call Fun Lemningar, these sort of ancient sites from, you know, some are from the Bronze Age, but some are even earlier from like the, uh, the Iron Age. So um, for people who are interested in those kinds of things, I mean, it's practically like every few kilometers you can stop and look at something. And then, of course, you know, you have the rune stones as well with their inscriptions. So it's like unlimited wherever you go. I think Sweden, I think, is the heartland, though, because Norway is more mountainous. Finland has beautiful things as well, and a lot of rock art as well. But, you know, Finland is not part of Scandinavia, it's part of the Nordic region, but it's not a Scandinavian country. But if you were to tour all of these countries, you can see a truly amazing amount of ancient things. And I think also being on that ancient land, then I teach at my forest school, I get a lot of people who have Scandinavian ancestors, but who are you know, have grown up in like third generation, American or Canadian or wherever they come from. And there is something about bringing them back to the sacred land, visiting these places. And like one of my students um, once said that, you know, I can hear the ancestors singing my blood. It's such a powerful thing to return and be on that land. So, yeah, it's a powerful experience. That's so powerful. Yes. I hear the ancestors sing in my blood. That's incredibly powerful yes wow thank you for sharing about that i i think you know i i want to put those sites on my list as well of <laughs> places to see um it's so interesting my my nine-year-old daughter wants to go to sweden She's oh? for years now she wants to go to sweden so i feel oh. like um we don't i i don't believe we have any swedish in our ancestry but she's very connected and she wants to go so yeah well, there you go you will get here <laughs> Yes. Could you tell us as well about the uh, Mesolithic Arctic deer shamanism um, and, and what is what is important for us to know about that? Well, that was part of a TV program that was made for the Smithsonian Museum. And, uh, you know, and it's like that, that program was about, uh, you know, Ice Age shamanism. And it focused on Star Car, that's a site in the UK, actually near the uh, city of York. Uh, so it's not in Sweden. We're now talking about the uh, UK. And, um, well, that was like a TV program where the idea was that I would take the presenter on a shamanic journey to see if he go, you need to just spend time at Star Car, more from an intellectual point of view, if I could like, take him into the zone where he had his own impressions of that. And, you know, he had some impressions. It's quite hard work to get him there, but, you know, he got there in the end. And, yeah, it's another of these really early sites and uh, also where a lot of, like, antlers have been found. So they had a strong connection to deer. And, of course, the Sami people have their reindeer and the Inuit have their caribou. caribou. So there's this whole circumpolar tradition of uh, deer shamanism in the sense of... Um, that there are coherent shamanic practices associated with deer as like a key animal that people like hunted, but they did far more than hunting because they also depended for their lives on these animals. So they had a very intimate relationship with these animals. It's not like, oh, you just buy your meat uh, wrapped in uh, plastic in the supermarket. But, you know, people who depended on these animals actually had a very, very intimate relationship with these animals where their own faith was tied up with these animals. And it was felt a really strong responsibility to sort of, you know, handle them well and to deal with the remains of the animals really well. 
Because the idea is that you stay on good terms and that you sort of, you know, appease in the soul of the animal might be unhappy, it got haunted. Or maybe it offered to itself, you know, different beliefs around that. But you wanted to do it all in, in, in a very good spirit. So the animal would choose to be born again. And so there would be like deer and animals and transport and all of those things in the future as well. And the reindeer herders, you know, the Sami people up north here in Arctic Scandinavia, they still do that. They still live that lifestyle. Yeah, I love that. It's um, this this focus that we have so forgotten in our modern culture, but about ensuring the continuance of life, right? These mm-hmm. rituals and offerings and different actions, very simple things really that we can do to, to ensure the continuance of life. Like you said, to ensure that that deer gets born again into a new, a good new life. Yeah. But also giving back to what gives us life to not just take for granted that other beings are going to die. And I'm even talking about plants and you could be a a vegan and try to eat a vegan diet at the moment. But even for me to eat like plants still have to die and give up their lives so that I can eat. And that's one of the great ontological dilemmas uh, for human beings that for us to live, something else is to give up its life and die. So we're back to the death uh, topic, I'm afraid. But that can only really be done in a relationship deep honoring and trying to give something back and sort of, you know, managing that with the greatest respect and also with ritual and ceremony. Yes, yes. Is there is there anything else that you wanted to say about this idea of making death our ally? I know you mentioned it a little bit earlier. Um, what do we, what else do we need to know about that? Um, feels so important in our time. And I, it working with Egypt, you, I have, I have Anubis right here. <laughs> you know, yes, I, you do. These ancient cultures, you know, we're so deeply in touch with that, you know, accepting both, right? Life and death together. It's all part of our experience. We cannot have one without the other. And we try to run away from death, you know, for sure in our culture. So how can we, how can, what, what, what would you say about that? How can we improve that relationship? Well, I think what I would say about that is that then I just tell people what I do there with the daily practice and the initial reaction, oh, that's like so morbid, like I'm not going to die today. Well, you can never be sure about that. You could literally die any moment. But, you know, okay, maybe statistically it's unlikely. But what people I think do not realize is that then you have a practice like that uh, and it becomes as natural as breathing it's such a positive thing. You know, it's a wonderful thing when you start dropping your fear of death and you can sort of be in the world without being on the run from death. And just a few days ago, I'd done a little pen and ink sketch, you know, about that concept of contemplating my own death. So it shows like a huge oversized skull and then I'm kneeling in front of it, looking into the eyes of the skull. And I put that on social media because of the daily art post. And I thought that, you know, people like, wouldn't like it at all because people usually don't like anything to do with death. So I shared the post on social media and it's got a huge number of reactions where people said, oh, that is so beautiful. I'm going to try that. And maybe it also helps help to have the picture up. And, and people were sort of sharing like the role that death had played in their lives and how their lives have improved once they had realized that. You know, because also in our culture, we're so self-centered and ego-focused. Even when people die at a really good age, we still sort of think, oh, they people like they lose a battle with the disease, or like it would be um, a personal like insult, or it would be offensive to die. And as you know, death is actually the natural outcome of being alive. Death is the sacred twin of life. So it's the book, you know, the bookends of birth and death. And I think. 
And then, you know, you see that in our societies, well, there are like people who um, have a terminal disease and, you know, we'll ask them another round of chemotherapy. And it's very, very clear that the work that really needs to be done is death preparation work. And that's another thing as part of my shamanic practice that, you know, for many years I've done with people and still do. But where you actually work with people who know that death isn't too far off. And then you start like working on actively creating a good death. And one of these things is that you can use shamanic techniques, such as shamanic journeys, to already have people visiting their death, or you can already like take them to the land of the dead and sort of meet their ancestors and have a brief visit, and then they can come back. And then people have explicit wishes for how they want that to go. You can ask for allies to come forward. You know, you can sort of sounds a bit strange maybe, but you can actually make an arrangement, you can agree for a, you can start working with a death ally long before you die and ask that that being is going to be there in your moment of death. Depending on your cosmology, it could be an angel, it could be a, could be an animal. For one woman I worked with, it was a, it was a whale. So we like made this uh, and you know made this agreement with the spirit of the whale that when her time came, the whale would come and sort of take her. And she was a musician, so there was going to be a lot of music involved as well. And she called that idea from a painting I had made about my own death, saying she wanted to work with that more. And you know, so death is not just something that like washes over you and that you're where you're powerless. Yes, you're powerless. You don't get unless you commit suicide, which I don't recommend. Uh, you don't get to choose the, the day or the time of your death. But other than that, we're not powerless. You know, we have our whole lifetime where we can already start actively working with that. And as I said, see it as an ally and a friend, uh, rather than, you know, being in denial, thinking it's not going to happen if those suggestions make sense. Yes. I love that idea of having, making the, the agreement that this being will come and, and be with you. Cause I think that's one of the fears, right? Is that we'll, we'll feel so alone in that moment. You know, we'll feel like we're leaving everybody and everything we've known. And, and that's a big part of it. So to, to know that this being like the whale is going to come and be there and guide you and, and, and be a part of that process. It's really, it's, it's really beautiful. It's really comforting. It really helps, but also, you know, there will always be what you call psychopaths or soul conductors. You know, I don't think any death is ever unattended. But also sometimes when people die, a shocking or violent or unexpected death, they're not like immediately sort of, you know, open to that. And it's like, pushing you know, a sudden unexpected accidental death is a different thing again from the death that you have prepared for and that you see coming. I mean, I understand that. But... Um, you know, these beings will be there always. And, you know, another thing that's really good is connecting with the ancestors. Well, like I've already sort of done journeys where this was just a reference. I saw an anthropological text from Siberia where it was said there is like a particular river that is in this world. So it's geographical, but then it leads into the other world. And that all the people who have been you know, shamans in, in, in life, they sort of live in a little hut by the river on the other side. And I thought it was such a beautiful idea. And I don't call myself a shaman, I call myself a forest witch. But I actually traveled on that river and, you know, created myself a little hut. And I covered her sometimes and I put pictures on the wall and I already prepared, sort of thinking that I already have a home in the afterlife in the land of the ancestors and it's by a river. And that's where I'm trying to come. So you can work with death in really positive ways. Amazing. Thank you for sharing these, these insights with us. Yeah. Um, let's see, I have one more question for you, and that is for those listening who may be um, maybe not 
doing any shamanic practices yet, or maybe be somewhere, you know, fairly new on their journey of spiritual awakening. Um, what would you recommend to get started if they're very interested in what you're saying here um, in in connecting in with, you know, the, the shamanic realms or the unseen realms? What is a what is a, an amazing, you know, starting practice that that people can begin with? Well, I actually think learning how to do shamanic journeying, as it's called, is a technique from core shamanism, shamanism is, is very, very good. And that's like something, I don't practice core shamanism anymore, but that's something I've kept because it works so well. You know, I've worked with children, uh, with many students, I uh, use it myself. So if I had to single out one practice, I think that that's a very good one. I'd also pay attention to dreams. I would connect with um, like-minded people, so you're like not alone. Your everyday life, you may just be surrounded by people who are not open to what you want to explore. It's really important to have people around you. Um, who support that and also I think sooner or later I think finding a teacher who resonates with you who's in alignment with what you want to learn and um, people often say oh but can't I learn anything on my own I think you can learn a lot on your own yes but a teacher can sort of help you accelerate things and a teacher can also be a mentor who helps you do things safely and if you're really going to be dealing with the other world you're going to discover that not everything in the world of spirit is good. I mean, there are like parts of the world of spirit where, you know, more troubled beings are and live. So, you know, like also like learning some good tools for like doing it all safely and coming back. And, you know, so it's like a fully grounded practice. That's why I think, you know, um, finding a teacher can be a good thing. Yes, yes. And books, of course, the fantastic books out there. Yes, and your books, <laughs> for sure. My books especially, of course. <laughs> yeah. Yes, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for this, Imelda. And I know you have a wonderful free gift for us. So could you tell our audience a little bit more about that free gift and what that was? Yes. Yeah, of course. Um, you already talked earlier about like, post-pandemic support for young people in a time of great paradigm shifts. Um, so my free gift is a link for that workshop in my online school. So that's Pregnant Neck Teachings. And that's like a two-hour workshop where I take um, people through um, various basic spiritual tools and things to think about and to be mindful of if you want to play a kind of mentoring or supportive role in the life of young people. So sort of like next a bit of that, talk to a lot of other practitioners and colleagues and people in different fields, so started by mapping what is going on, what are young people struggling with, and then as we looked at, okay, and what are the shamanic tools you can use to sort of, you know, like handle that or mitigate that and make things better. So it's like a free two-hour workshop, you know, anyone can attend it in their own time by watching the recording in my school uh, and hopefully take something away that's useful. So I hope that people listening will, will try that. Yes, what a fantastic free gift. And I can just see the ripples of support and good, you know, results going out into the world from everybody, um, you know, learning that material and learning more about what they can do to support our young people. So thank you so much for offering that. I hope so. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> yes. And thank you, Imelda, for this wonderful time together and this beautiful conversation. I've learned so much. Um, so thank you for your time and your, your wisdom. It's always wonderful to speak with you. Thank you for having me and for your questions.
absolutely. Have a wonderful day. You and too. To everybody out there in the Sacred Planet audience, much love to you. And I'll see you again soon in the next interview. Blessings. Okay. I hope you've enjoyed this wonderful episode of the Sacred Planet podcast. Be sure to click like and subscribe to our channel so that you will receive future updates. You'll know when we go live and when we are publishing the new episodes. And also be sure to put a note in the comments. What did this episode mean to you? What did this speaker and this topic inspire and awaken in you? And how do you want to share that with the world in new ways going forward? I would love. Oh, thank you, Rama. I was just going to say there's another step. We're at the place now in the shift. We don't have to do that. That's a choice. It's a choice. I, I, the principles are good. And uh, awakening to who we truly are is, uh, is uh, the word on this path, on this good red road. And I know that somebody else here, Rainbird, this good red road that we walk together, I pass this talking stick for your words of inspiration that the completion of the show here it comes on that emerald serpent feathers right there with you here it comes all right right. (laughs) and thank you thank you thank you what a great evening it was good excuse me getting on that good red road is a good one to be on and uh it's nice to speak with people on that Bringing in those ancestors in the good blue road. <laughs> and we end up with lavender and that <laughs> violet flame. So there you go. We got this. Let's do it. And I really enjoyed the evening. And I pass this talking stick over to you, Rama. Have you got something for us? Yeah. This is uh, Rumi with Coleman Barks. Haven't played this in. Many, many moons. All right. That's what's it called? Um, Whoops. Uh, I don't really remember. Well, we'll find out. Let's hear it. We're ready. I'm all ears. part of the world leave the world? How does wetness leave water? Don't try to put out a fire by throwing on more fire. Don't wash a wound with blood. fast you run, your shadow keeps up. Sometimes it's in front. Only full overhead sun diminishes your shadow. But that shadow has been serving you. hurts you, blesses you, 
Darkness is your candle. Your boundaries are your quest. I could explain this, but it would break the glass cover on your heart. And there's no fixing that. You must have shadow and light source both. Listen and lay your head under the tree of all. When from that tree feathers and wings sprout on you, be quieter than a dove. Don't open your mouth for even a you must have shadow and light source both listen and lay your head under the tree Everybody, that's beautiful, and thank you, Rama. Mm. It's good to hear Mr. Coleman's voice. Uh, until this afternoon, mm. uh, be well. Know that we are who we are together, and yes, we can, and we are the ones we've been waiting for, and we love everyone. Aloha. Namaste.